This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. The people of our continent are once again bearing the cost of industrialization of the North and the development of the wealthy nations of the world. This is a price that the people of Africa are no longer prepared to pay. Many countries in the North count their assets in the mineral resources that are beneath the African soil. The wealth of Africa belongs to Africans. Despite its history, despite the legacy of exploitation, colonialism, and subjugation, Despite the ongoing challenge of conflict and instability, Africa is determined and ready to regain its position as a site of human progress. The era of African development has arrived. Oh, okay, good, good everything, good everything. Good everything. Hi, hi Dr. Carr. Good everything, Professor Hunter. What what uh what uh prompted you to open our convening this morning with the president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa? Well, I had I had to brave the the highways and the byways this week. Uh, Did and, you? Yeah, and I ran right into the traffic that would be the UN assembly and all of its dignitaries blocking up traffic and shutting down streets and making my commute uh, much more uh, lengthy than it needed to be. But I was okay. I was okay with it because I got got where I needed to be on time. But it reminded me uh, that there's some things happening globally. And I don't think, uh, I think, I think we're at a, at a point. So I wanted to ask you since the message today is, you know, um, who determines our emancipation? Who determines our emancipation? That's a good question, isn't it? Yes, it's a brilliant question. I just cut and pasted. Um, and now, thank you for giving me <laughs> giving me. We're, we're the having a conversation. We'll, we'll, we'll give credit to Father Abraham. Okay. Yes, all of that. Uh, but it, 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 you know, this is a question since the Sonia Sanchez, uh, you know, phrase "uh huh, uh huh," but how do it free us? Showed up on the Africano uh, framework. I um. I've been thinking about what freedom is individually, collectively. How do we get free? Who is out there freeing us? Who's not? You know, is it individual freedom? Is it collective? And we've been talking about BRICS, um, which uh, which South Africa is a part of. And that was the South African prime minister basically telling the world um, what you're not going to do. But we've been here before. So. I, I grew up in a household where my father, um, the name Kwame Nkrumah was prevalent. So I, as a little girl, knew who this was, knew, uh, I knew about Lumumba, you know, my father was, I think he might've been a Pan-Africanist, even though we never had that conversation. Probably was, Probably. you know, you know Che Guevara, you know, there was, there was conversations had, you know, that I would uh, eavesdrop on. Cause you know, being a little kid of young parents, you know, they talk around you. But yeah, yeah, that's true. But we know that um, you know Ghana, and yes. you know what happened to Patrice Lumumba. I mean, tragic. Um, at some point, the globe comes together, and they they you know say no, you're not going to own yourselves. We're going to come and take everything. That's right. But is this different with bricks? Uh, maybe, maybe. I mean, yes and no in the sense that we've heard these speeches time after time. We know that, 
right? We, we saw, heard Shay at the UN, heard uh, Nkrumah, as you say, at the UN, heard Abdullah Wad probably about 20 years ago, then president of Senegal, saying that until Africa is able to develop our own resources, the oil, the, the minerals, they will stay in the ground. Um, hell, we even heard, in fact, Lumumba making those assertions, they had to take him out and turned around. He was the inspiration, at least initially, when Kirby and and, uh, and Stan Lee made the Black Tiger, uh, the Black Panther, his original name, as we talked about before, was the Cold Tiger, which was the nickname that they gave to Patrice Lumumba, who said, this stuff will stay in the ground. You're not going to get it. And then they took him out, which, uh, you know, a lot came of people and, came and got it. Well, my friend uh, Ty Stephen Burroughs in, in the edited volume he did on Black Panther, the comic book and the movie, he uh, he speculates that whereas in the comics, that's the position Wakanda has. You're not going to take our vibranium. If you remember at the end of Black Panther, Chad Bozeman stands up and says, welcome, y'all come. We're going to share with the world. In other words, the propaganda is real. Remember that last speech at the UN where he says, we're going to open up Wakanda. No, we're not opening up Wakanda. Well, but then uh, Angela Bassett in the opening of right. <laughs> Wakanda Forever is like, what you're not going to do is come in here. It sends your spies in here. Here, here they go. Right. Which, which is, and that's the trust. I mean, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. Right, right. And I'm glad, you know, the entry point through media, through because because comic books, books, movies, TV, it's all media. It's all with the purpose. And I often think about Stan Lee's impetus, you know, to see an injustice and then the one up, you know, magnify it through art. Um, but through your white lens still, you know, it's interesting. And I'm and I'm grateful, you know, because, you know, we didn't we wouldn't have these amazing movies and young kids wouldn't dress up in ho at hollow at Halloween. Anyway, okay. Hi. <laughs> you gotta play somebody. Somebody gonna do cosplay. Yeah. So so let's let's look who determines our emancipation. Where where are we right now? There's a lot of a lot, a lot of things happening. I've had some interesting conversations this week. Um, and it's making me think, you know, uh this this election coming up 2024. Uh, you know, we have a lot of, you know commentary around you know who should stay who should go should biden harris step down is there is there you know uh is trump going trump is probably going to jail i don't think he's going to be a factor but i don't think you know all of this is going to be i don't think america is going to be a factor if i'm being honest but i just yeah i don't know That's i don't know dr Carr. Why, why you say that bro why you say america no i just i feel like you know there there's several inflection points you know th those who study history which i don't study as much as you um, no, yeah, a yeah, lot of people we should we all should be studies, but you can't no. yeah but you know, but there's a banging you know there's a point where there's a breakthrough right there there like i mentioned you know there was a point with Nkrumah and Lumumba there was like a point a drumbeat of like oh there's going to be freedom liberation africans are coming together you saw malcolm coming in they were going to come to the un put america up on charges you know like the african nations then Gaddafi was like oh one dollar for the africans we're going to bring the africans together we got all the oil and the resources why we got to beg for anything That's listen right. i'm richer than everybody no let's question. come together let's get one let's take us off the dollar then next thing you see, he's being um, sodomized and brutal. I was like, "What's happening?" Thanks, Barack and Hillary, uh, Barack and Hillary took care of that. Uh, Woo! I said, "Wait a minute." Okay. Yeah. In fact, there's a long, you know, right now with that hell of a flood that happened in Libya, where cities were washed literally into the Mediterranean. You know, we see now the warlord who took over Eastern Libya, 
uh, Benghazi, of course, which is Benghazi, Benghazi, Benghazi. Yeah, it's still there. Cert, the city, they're beefing. And the people, they shut off the internet because the people are criticizing the government. The Western side, which is being propped up in part by the United States, they don't even, they're not even talking to each other. They're at war. Meanwhile, perhaps as many as 10,000 people or more got washed into the Mediterranean and there's no crisis response thing. And who do we have to thank for it? With all of his, everything else he was, it ain't Gaddafi. It's in fact, the United States of America, the United Nations, Europe. And a lot of what happened at the UN this week when you start talking about these so-called coups that went from east to west, from Sudan all the way over to the Atlantic Ocean to Guinea, we heard President of Guinea, of course, as well. You know, a lot of their complaints are that you what y'all have done is set up shopping here because you want our minerals. The, the president of Congo, Shishikedi, he said at the UN this week, you know, get the UN troops out of Congo now. Just get them out of Congo. That doesn't mean that Shishikedi doesn't have problems. What it's saying is that y'all are not here helping us. In fact, in, uh, we saw it in Mali. There's an article in the uh, uh, Financial Times on Timbuktu uh, yesterday. Timbuktu is royal because these Islamic jihadists have occupied it. And a lot of what it goes back to is the 2011 destabilization of Libya. So, I mean, you know, our hands are not clean. When I say ours, we didn't do it. Yeah, we paid taxes. See, while we, we so busy cheering for fly haircuts and little boys rubbing the head of the president in the Oval Office and your fly wife and children that you forget this guy was not the president of Black America. He was not freeing us. He is doing his job. He is the head of state for the United States of America. So when, when you say that um that America is not or won't be a factor, I would agree. I'm just curious to think, how, how do you see this playing out? Because you're uh, there. You're at the heart of the empire, right? You, you're in the area. Please don't say that. Please no, I mean, but like you said, you got tied up in the traffic. This is what I'm saying. They, they were all in the UN today. And we've been talking about everything from ball games to, 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 to hip hop. And meanwhile, the whole world was at the UN. They still there, like you said. So what um, do you think? I'm just, you know, again, reading the fall of Rome before mm -hmm. that Greece, before that Egypt, uh, before that, you know, it's like the falls happen. And they're, they're, you know, you see it, you see the birth pains, they call them, you know, even yesterday was supposed to be the rapture, maybe this morning, uh, I'm still here, you're still here, I cleared it. Maybe maybe, I, they, maybe, maybe, they won't. maybe, maybe we didn't make the cut, or maybe there's no guy, guy. Depending on who who, who Jesus is, because uh, as, uh, <laughs> as Harry Neil Turner said, if I'm going where you're going, I would rather go to other places. So anyway. <laughs> that, that said, well, I'm very firm in that the hair of wool. But, but we're, we're, we're not still here, so. Maybe, yeah, I don't, maybe we're not going. Anyway. So uh, that said, you know, barring the rapture, you know, America's, America has a lot. I feel like the world is waking up and they're waking up and, and BRICS because it's Brazil, it's Russia, it's China, it's India. You know, these are nations that both have nuclear war. I mean, excuse me. Oh, shoot. Nu nuclear power, wealth, you know, um, China owns a lot of our wealth, right? Um, and, and South Africa, you know, one of these nations okay. like Nigeria, yeah. like, yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's, it's like, it, it feels like people are forming against us. You got North Korea coming in from the side with, you know, even though, you know, he's, he's an interesting character. I'm not undermining saying like that person's not to be, you know, looked at and yeah, America's still the most powerful military nation and maybe the most powerful, uh, but we even have people inside. This is what I, I feel about America, you know, from the Elon Musk to the, even the Bill Gates, whatever, they're not American nationalists. They don't care about this country. 
So there was a time when, you know, our robber barons cared about building this country because that's where they put their stakes down. But now everything's global and they can just as much. They're making more. Nike makes more money, you, you know, making sneakers off off the coast of America, you know, than it does here. Right. So mm -hmm. the wealth is being built in Africa. The wealth is being built outside of this nation. So. But Elon Musk is a white nationalist. I mean, when we say we, I, I'm yeah. never. I, well, I mean, I mean allegiance to the United States of America and the hey, Constitution and all of the things that you know are written in it. They don't care, you know, because no. this is just you know, not even home base for them. No, but, neither, but neither do the white nationalists in the federal legislature. That is true. Yeah, that is true. They don't, they don't care. See, the, the right. trick is nobody cares about the United States. This is all cosmic. Okay. That's why I think it's ripe to fall because who's who's standing for it? There was at least a, a myth of that's of, not true. Barack Obama, I think, believes in the United States. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think and, he and happy belated birthday to Pastor Jeremiah Wright. Um, happy birthday, Baba J. This is a birthday weekend. John Coltrane's yeah. birthday today. It's like so many. Yeah, Baba J is chilling out there in the shy. Yes. And as he yes. said, if you're going to do this kind of thing, then goddamn America coming from the Bible, which people claim they believe in. Right. Barack, in fact, I was watching that speech Barack gave uh, the president of the United States, 44th gave at uh, in Philadelphia. I was standing outside the Constitution Center. I couldn't get one of them tickets, but I stood up there to bear witnesses to who was let in. I watched them pull the school buses up and pump them school children in there. I watched as they were going in the Constitution Center down there across the street from Independence Hall. And when Barack Obama gave a more per that or more perfect union speech and, and grabbed uh, Baba J by the scruff of his neck and by his pants and threw him under the bus <laughs> uh, with the help of David Axelrod, David Pluff and his minders uh, and was and was lauded for having so much courage for uh, for comparing Jeremiah Wright, a, a veteran of the United States Marines, uh, a person who put his life on the line, a man who has built community and here from a family of community builders in our community and beyond to his grandmother, uh, who was a racist. And, and so, you know, I watched Barack Obama and this isn't, this isn't a criticism of Barack no, Obama. I was going to just say, you know, his presidency twice, um, I think inspired people the way Deion Sanders inspires people on a Sunday. You know, there's there's inspiration and they're little kids who, you know, for whom that was the only president that they knew. And so, you know, they could imagine themselves all with races and backgrounds. You know, there's, there was representation. Uh, so I'm never going to say that that was wrong, but we should criticize no. all people who no. want our vote because they're politicians. Yeah. No, they're it's not, not wrong. And, I, and not. I like I think that's a good comparison. Because there are unintended consequences to a system that can't be reformed. And in the case of Sanders and in the case of Obama, there are going to be some unintended consequences for sure. And one of them is that somebody might mess around and get free because neither one of them cats is leading us to anywhere other than reinforcing the hierarchy that exists, economic and political. But you're right. There are unintended consequences. People can be inspired for the for the wrong reasons, and I hope that's what happens with us. But uh, but yeah, I mean, no, but no, but you're, you're making a very important point. Obama, you know, and again, this isn't about Obama. When you mention, uh, you know, Jeremiah Wright, consistent, do the right thing morally. And what you see is this social structure that we live in, the modern world system, is simply not set up to do that. So if you wanted to change, when we ask the question, you know, who uh, emancipates us, who determines our emancipation, is us. No, 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 come on, because I, I, mean, I want to ask you about some other things, too. I mean, it, you know, how do we, who determines it? It's not going to be the structure. The, 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 the structure is the structure, is the social structure. It is impacted by what we do. Um, 
again, you know, I, I do sit in many seats um, and I get to see some things and I've seen some things over there. There's, there's something to be said for time put in. You know, we both no question. Been, been in rooms and seen people ascend and descend and, you know, flame out. And, and we've seen, <laughs> you know, the, the bevy of pick me Negroes come through, get their checks and then, you know, blow up the, the, the checks because, you know, it wasn't really even about that. It was about the checks. It was, it was um, and, and that's just interesting. Mayor of Dallas, by the way. I uh, hope that check is good, brother. But uh, go ahead. It <laughs> just flipped. Yeah. <laughs> After so, and, that, and that's internal. You know, we got organizations and organizational leaders that have been, you know, um, pimping uh, black trauma, nope. you know, for for decades. And, you know, and, and they've been bolstered by, you know, uh, white nationalism at the same time. But, you know, and the, and the justification is, well, uh, you know, at least it's in our hands, you know, as if, you know, there's an arrogance to that, you know, money in my hands is going to be better served than, in, you know, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know, Dr. Carr, you know, I, I do know that individual freedom is everything, but I don't know. I'm like, this. Mm. I get up and I'm like, is it though? I don't know. I'm just, I'm like, I'm at a loss. This is one of the first times, like, uh, I could usually see very clearly <laughs> what's happening. It's yes. so cloudy. It's so yes. cloudy. I don't know where we're going to end up. I don't know what's going to happen, but I just know we got to just keep pouring a clean glass of water, keep telling the truth, keep holding ourselves accountable, keep holding one another accountable. And hopefully, you know, something's going to break through constant drip on any hard surface. So I'm going to be that constant drip. Me, Yeah, I agree with you. And, and it's going to change. It's going to change. The change is inevitable. The question is, you know, how can we manage change and how can we affect change? So, you know, we start talking about freedom. You know, it's funny. Uh, uh, this is Jamal Green's book, How Rights Went Wrong. He's talking about the fact that, you know, we talk about rights in this country and how rights went wrong. Why our obsession with rights is tearing America apart. Uh, Green is at Columbia Law School. Brother, um, he also is also was a sports writer for a while sports illustrated but he uh clerked for john paul stevens interesting this is a very interesting book he he's talking about how the courts gained outsized um power over the concept of rights in the united states and so we talk about our rights and, and, and individual freedoms you know those are those are quote-unquote rights within a a legal universe that is beyond our individual capacity to control. So when we start talking about the right to do anything, let's say, for example, that you are a wholly owned subsidiary of white billionaires like uh, Clarence Thomas. Uh, you have the right to get on a, a jet and go see your friends, the Koch brothers and the Koch network donor events. And you get you have the right to go to the private summit and and ride the Gulf Stream G200 and, you know, go from place to place, maybe touch down in Colorado somewhere to see one of your clerks and, and, you know, and then fly back to Virginia. And you have the right not to put that on a form, on a disclosure form. Why? Because uh, if, uh, if you're a federal judge, all that would get you reprimanded, get you written up, get you investigated, might get you put off the bench. But if you are a Supreme Court justice, they no rules like that. You got to disclose your form too, but you know, it's left up to them. So rights ultimately become rights to the degree that there is some arbiter that can determine whether or not they're rights. Now that works well until it doesn't. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask you, right? So <laughs> read Daniel Favors. I might play her song. She's got a song about Clarence Thomas being a whole asshole. 
Uh, <laughs> and and, um, and I'm like, a hoe. Yeah, he's a hoe. And and she said a cheap hoe at that, you know. And and you think about the egregious way in which this man has, you know, just out there just being corrupt and is like, is it corrupt? Going, who going to check? Well, is it corruption in a world that, you know, allows for the corruption? I don't exactly. yes, know. point. So someone in Nubia said, you know, this is a sinking ship. Should we get off of it? And I was like, well, it's not a ship. It's no. a crumbling empire. So pick up the rubble and and form and start building. You know, like the the, the bricks are still there. There's going to be some boulders and things. There's things we can still build with because we built it to begin with. It's a crumbling empire. Um, that or maybe it was e- even a house of cards. Maybe it was, uh, you know, not even really what it was supposed. You know, maybe it's just, you know, like the Wizard of Oz. We've lifted the curtain. Have we? we well, some of us have lifted some the curtain. Don't you see? That some of us. It's not. It's not real. Um, outside of the nuclear weapons, you know, you can't. Once these folk decide that they're not going to use our dollar, you know. A long time in the offing, but what we had certainly see with the BRICS is that it's more than talk now. Right, but not just the BRICS, Dr. Carr. We got the UAW, UPS, That's Amazon, right. you know, and, and you know, it just, I had Ali Velshi on and he, man, so he talked about Toronto. So we're busy building a wall and fighting. And he said when he was a little boy, you know, his parents come from South Africa. Mm-hmm. And they came into Toronto. He said it was like a podunk town. It was a, but then Canada said, "Open the borders, let all of the immigrants in." Right. And they built the damn city into something that rivals New York right now, right? right. And that wasn't a long time because Ali Velshi's not that old, right? So in just a short period of time, these folk came here looking for a better life, and they found it because no one tossed them out, right? And that's what that could look like here if we stop demonizing folk and. And we got a million jobs on man in places that they say, you know, the, the immigrants are taking our jobs. Well, we have negative uh, immigration in, in many places, right? We have more people leaving and coming. So they say, and then there's droves coming. I don't know what to believe, but I know that we treat people really horribly. You know, <laughs> you know what to believe. Yeah. You know, so, that's, you know, that's why nasty propaganda at the border. So what's, what's true, right? So if, if UAW, they, they say we want the same percentage raise that the CEO got, right? The CEO, <laughs> for, she makes $29 million mm-hmm. and $2 million base salary. And the rest is in bonuses because she's been able to suppress salaries and keep people, you know, you know under the thumb. And, and she's been benefited, right? She's, she's benefited financially by keeping the margins low. Right? How dare you ask for more? You gonna cut into my my private jet? What is happening here? No. Haven't we? Don't we have retirement funds? TIA Craft. Where is the stock invested? Where is it? This is. I mean, she's getting credit for doing something. This is what I'm saying. Capitalism can't be reformed unless those of us who benefit from it too, which is why she gets the bonus, say. I'm pulling my money out of TIA Crip, which began, of course, as Andrew Carnegie's fund to create the whole process of recruiting these things in the first place. I mean, we have to make choices. Right. Because I've seen people do it, you know, and I think even Ford himself did it. It's like, I'm going to pay people enough so they can buy my cars. That's white. Yes. But the logic of it, Dr. Carr, Mm -hmm. still makes sense. Right. So the fact that you can make 29 million and people are, you know, taking a 12 year hiatus from even getting a raise to save the auto industry that had to be bailed out. But y'all have record profits, $8 billion. But you won't share that with the people? Like, it's well, let's, let's, let's follow that logic. Let's follow it. Let's say that they give them the 40% raise. And let's say that they invest heavily in 
uh, retooling factories. And there was a long article in New York Times yesterday about the retoolings in Michigan. Manufacturing is no longer the leading employer in Michigan, but it's still significant, still part of their brand, still part of their, but there was a, there was a factory they were going to close down, but they retooled it. I think it may have been Ford, but they retooled it to manufacture the parts for the electric vehicles that are coming. Let's say they did all that. What would happen then? Uh, what would happen? We'd, we'd have, well, I'm assuming that the CEOs of these uh, corporations would be voted out by their boards. I mean, cause in other words, the profit margin, yeah, okay. So how much do you need? I mean, well, you're asking a philosophical question. I mean, you want to talk about freedom, but like if me making, you know, $20 million in bonuses mm-hmm. means that we're now striking and scuffling and fighting as opposed to me giving up maybe half of that, not even all of it, right? And and there's no no argument that you need $29 million, CEO. There's no and, and CEO salaries have gone up what 1300 percent but you, you know, while, while wages have been made, I mean, it's it doesn't make sense. It's based on performance. What's right? performance? Performance is uh, stifling people. Performance is profit. This is uh, this oh, is. Oh my goodness! You no, know, this is uh, this is the the new no Fortune Fortune magazine, the Global Five Hundred. I was reading it on the train up to Philly no the other day, and here's the list of the five hundred biggest uh, corporations in the in the world for the tenth straight year. Walmart. Tops the global fortune five, a uh, global five hundred are listed the world's biggest companies by revenue, with sales topping six hundred and eleven billion dollars in twenty twenty two. But Saudi Aramco nearly knocked the retail Goliath off its perch, benefiting from soaring energy prices aggravated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That also propelled Exxon Mobil and Shell back into the top ten. So we won't go over the five hundred. We won't go for. But the point is, even as we see now, oil inching toward hundred dollars a barrel because the Russians and and the Iraq and the Iranis are like, we're going to choke off the supply in part to stop the United States and stop the EU. So you got Walmart, Saudi Aramco, State Grid, Amazon.com is number number four. But down for number two, the oil, China National Petroleum is number four. Wow. Sinopec Group from China, number five. ExxonMobil, number uh, six, rather. Seven, ExxonMobil. Apple, number uh, eight. Shell, number nine. And United Health Group is number 10. I should mention number 11. That would be CBS Health, the United States. They're making money by making sure you ain't got no money. Right. So I'm saying people, well, I was going to say people aren't stupid. Mm-mm. We are uh, not naturally. Oh, socialized yeah. in the stupidity, but we that's have, what I'm saying. You yeah. have been conditioned to be stupid enough to look at this situation and say you have been making record profits, and now y'all laying off. Like this when when, the, when all of the 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 tech companies started laying people off, and Apple has more cash on hand than anybody. Teach problem. How are you laying off people when you got more cash than anybody, and you keep putting out a new funky phone and messing up my phone that I just got because you want me to buy another thousand dollar phone because you can't have it. You haven't you even the space new- missile titanium vibranium new phone that I have the 15 I, gotta, I said what, what do I need this for so that because they have to need your money need your money right so they're playing games at some point everybody's gonna be like why wait wait a minute wait a minute why am I struggling with three jobs and this <laughs> this company had record profits and they're still laying people off when which they don't really have to this week right which is why you spent this week talking about UAW and spent today so far talking about the United Nations People are fed up. If the people who are the leaders aren't going to do it, the people will do it. Though every coup in Africa that has taken place over the last several years is about you can't deliver for us. 
there are opportunists like the cat in Gabon, which is probably a palace coup. They family members. But the whole point is, Bongo got to go. All right, well, I'm going to take you out and pretend like it's different. In the Sudan, we see South Sudan split from Sudan. Sudan right now, Darfur is, is on fire because the two Again. generals that put out Again. the board, they fight each other. Yeah. And Darfur, Again, because Again. It, was, it was a genocide just exactly. 20 years ago. Exactly. And as, and as we are always reminded by people follow the money, what is it in Sudan that people won't, don't want to pay for? The reason there is a Sudan, in fact, I was just rereading one of Robert Collins' old books. In fact, uh, I don't think I have it around here with me. But anyway, he's talking about between maybe 1898 and 1914 or so, the British are in Sudan, not because they're trying to change people into Christians. That's West Africa, where they come with the missionaries first. They're not in Sudan because they... Uh, know the topography. They think the source of the Nile is somewhere other than where it is because they're looking at maps and don't understand the topography yet. They're in Sudan to stop the French. They're in Sudan to choke off any points to Egypt. They're in Sudan simply because they need to take control and they'll figure it out later. And here we are a century later, over a century later, and you see Africa, like everywhere else in the world, carved up at the will of those who put together a violent modern world system and have maintained it by either straight thuggery and murder, straight thuggery and violence, or by enticing those who are pulled into it, into the delusion that somehow they can carve out a little space to operate in it. But we're indoors. You know, we pay our bills. We're part of a class that isn't suffering. I mean, it will break your heart. Let me see if I can... It'll break your heart when you start looking at some of these stories that are being shared out of, uh, out of like, uh, yeah, today's Friday, it's Friday's paper, it's Friday's New York Times. When you see a story like what we see in Sudan, for example, let me see if I can find it in the next 10, 15 seconds. It's in, it's in the front. Come on, old school paper. I love it. Oh, you got to do that. I mean, I don't, I don't believe, you know, you can't, can't do it. Ah, here we are. Left broken into pieces. As Darfur clashes, force new generation to flee. This is the story of this brother, uh, Bahadin Adam. He had he had heard nothing from his family members. He, they didn't fled into South Sudan now because they fighting in Sudan. These two generals who put out uh, Omar Bashir, the, the old dictator, and he finally got message on his phone. Most of the family had had managed to escape Nayala, which is in Sudan, Darfur, but his two younger sisters, Mithak, 24, and Hana, 10, had been killed by artillery fire. He said, I was broken into pieces, Mr. Adam, 28, said in a recent interview in Rinktown in South Sudan. Five months after a devastating war began in Sudan between rival military forces, the western region of Darfur has quickly become one of the hardest hit in the nation, people in Darfur have already suffered, as you said, genocidal violence over the past two decades that has left as many as 300,000 dead. Now they back in the fight. And you see these, I mean, look at it. These are black women. Many are Muslim. Many speak Arabic, of course, in addition to their other language. These are African people. And they're not the only ones in the world suffering. As I said, you go to, uh, let me see, you go to FT yesterday. As I said, here's Timbuktu. Timbuktu suffers under jihadi blockade. UNESCO World Heritage Site residents choked off from supplies of food and medicine. 
Many observers attribute the origins of the decade-long violence in Mali and the wider Sahel region to the NATO intervention in 2011. That would be backed by Barack and Hillary. I'm sorry, United States of America. In 2011, that toppled Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. The flow of weapons and insurgents to the Sahel in the aftermath of the civil war has was instrumental in exacerbating the crisis. So you see the map here. You see Mali, Timbuktu, Gao, uh, the capital, Bamako. But what else do you see in that map? Guinea, Burkina Faso, Niger. You see a map of the places where the coups have been taking place. The people are suffering. Now, what is the interest of Europe? Natural resources. They want the uranium, the uranium out of places like Niger. That's one of the reasons why uh, your Secretary of State, and I say that derisively, there's Anthony Blinken grinning between Ariel Henry, the Prime Minister of Haiti, where they took out the president and stuck this guy in, and Alfred, uh, was it Al Alfred Mutua, the Kenyan Foreign Minister. See, because the guy in the middle is representing the empire, trying to keep them propped up. This is today's paper, U.S. Envoys, enjoy, uh, focus on a series of crises in Africa. And what are they saying? They need resources. They, In fact, they met with, here, on Friday morning, Mr. Blinken met with leaders of several nations that are members of the Economic Community of West African States, a regional group that has been pressuring Niger's military leadership to relinquish power under the threat of a military intervention. They trying to get Tanubu and the Nigerians to go in because Tanubu is leading uh, uh, ECOWAS, the president of Nigeria, who millions of Nigerians with good cause are saying this guy internationally is a drug dealer. He comes back to, to, to Nigeria, runs for president. They steal the election to make sure Peter Obi don't get in. And he is now the president of Nigeria. So now he's there. Biden sent his rep over there last month to uh, Abuja, to the capital. Like, okay, when we get to the UN in September, which is where they are now, it's like, I need to meet with you on the sidelines. What does that mean? I need to uh, remind you, sir, we got some propping up to do. Never mind that all that oil they have discovered off the coast of West Africa, underneath the shelf and in Africa has always been their uh, objective, need I remind, that in that top 10 of the global uh, biggest corporations are Exxon and Shell. The point is that it looks like political conflict, but the West is trying to make people get in line. So it says, in a readout following the meeting, the State Department said that attendees, quote, were united in their position that the National Council for Safeguarding the Homeland in Niger, here's that language in quotes, sound like the Nazis, the country's ruling military junta must release President Mohamed Bazoum, his family, and all those lawfully detained, unlawfully detained. In a side drama this week, representatives of Mr. Bazoum's government and the junta, uh, the, the people who did the coup, the military junta, junta, you might say, both sought to address the General Assembly. So they fighting back and forth, the Security Council meeting. I'm bringing all this to say, just like, and you played, uh, Prof, and you, you said that on social media too, a clip from our sister, again, the Prime Minister of Barbados, talking about this whole world in trouble, quoting the Ghanaian reggae artists. And, and you know, I mean, global warming is real. You know at the United Nations this week that the whole theme of the meeting is sustainable development. Blinken is over there trying to twist arms because they want these resources. Here in the United States, people are nervous. Why? The auto workers are like, yo, 
Y'all are moving electric, yeah, to keep making this money, yeah, because this uh, fossil fuels is unsustainable, yeah. We need jobs. And they say, okay, we'll, re we'll retool a few factories. Yeah, but we want a raise to 40%. They're going to get a raise because they can't afford not to give them a raise now. However, people are not stupid, as you say. The future has less jobs unless you are educating people, putting them to work, or re and not or, and redistributing resources so that labor, which we talked about about three weeks ago, so that labor is not just tied to salary and profit, but tied to the dignity of human life. So that if there isn't going to be a job, is the social structure you live in, is the government you live in set up in such a way so that it can provide for your basic needs and free you up so that your labor becomes not attached to a job that you're working for for a wage, but attached to what you want to do with your life. That too is a, that's a vision of a different type of society. That's not capitalism. In capitalism, everybody got to work. In capitalism, if you want to paint or dance or write a poem or sit around, if you can't get paid for it in capitalism, they saying, well, you need to be rich. You can't just do that with your life. Why? Because you got to do something so that I can profit off what you do or so that you can profit off what you do. So what we're seeing is, you know, the United Auto Workers are striking and the strike is expanding, you know, hour by hour. We're getting new messages that they're expanding the strike. Part of their fear is that once I don't have a job, I'm not going to get another job. But that fear is absolutely warranted by the fact that these capitalists don't give a damn. They are about profit. Now, if you are one of the owners, you have a legitimate fear too as a capitalist. Your fear is what is being realized as China, as other countries begin to invest in two things. Number one, the Chinese, for example, uh, are being pushed by the European Union who is saying, you, this trade imbalance where you all export more than you import got to stop because you flooding our countries, the European Union, that is, with these cars. You need to uh, spike your domestic purchasing power. You're, you're, the, 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 the people in China need to buy some of these cars you sending out to the EU. China's like, make us. Oh, excuse me for a minute. Wait, I'm on the phone with my friends. You're my new friends. You know, Brazil, uh, Russia. India, South Africa. Oh, I got some more friends too. Uh, I got a couple of uh, uh, oil producing companies, uh, countries now. Yeah, we let Iran in. Yeah, it's okay. What? Wait, wait, what the hell is it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, Brazil was cool with it. What? What the hell is it? What are y'all doing? We getting ready to try to break your political back from the stage, of, from the statecraft of, of the level of countries. See, this is this is this is this is a problem. So one of the two things they're doing is import export is imbalanced. And for the capitalists, that's where they use countries. Countries allow them to make their money in part by setting up a framework and enforcing that framework that exacerbates capitalism. So part of the reason that the people who pushing back against the striking UAA workers, UAW workers would say, uh, well, yeah, you may not make uh, the money that you want to make, but you make more money than if you were a factory in, fact in Mexico or... Yeah, because you've created tariffs, you've created barriers. You don't want global trade if you can't profit from it. China, we saw two of the companies, oil companies in the top 10, biggest corporations in the world, Chinese state companies. They are, they see the handwriting on the wall too, though. Fossil fuels going to have to diminish, right? So what are they doing? They're beginning to build factories to do 
the production of electric vehicles. This EV thing, every other day in the Financial Times, long articles on EV, on electric vehicles. But the problem domestically for the U.S. is, where do they want to put these factories, do you think, Professor Hunter and everybody? Where do these other countries want to put factories in the United States to produce electric vehicles? In a union state like Michigan? Where Donald Trump is going, he said, I'm going to Michigan. I'm going to skip the debate on the 26th uh, this, this coming week. And I'm going to go up there and stand with the workers. And these people, if you're stupid <laughs> enough to be in a union after what this man has done with at the bidding of the people who own him, he too, on wholly owned subsidiary. Clarence Thomas ain't got as much money as Donald Trump, but they both employees of the big money people. You know, if y'all stupid enough to stand with him, then you absolutely want your white nationalism to blind you to the reality of this man coming with a knife in his hand if you put him back in office. But where do they want to put these, these factories? Geographically in the United States. Not union states. They are eyeing Alabama, right. Mississippi. Well, Bessemer is already, I mean, that's where Amazon, I mean, it's already. Bessemer, come on, come on, prof. Come on now. We know what it is. We know what it is. Now the question is, who determines our emancipation? Organized labor scales the hell out of capitalists. So they will concede. I mean, you, we saw you, UPS was on the verge. We all watched it like we're watching a sports event because we've all been socialized to watch sports events. And we're thinking they're going to go on strike. These people knew they could not afford for United Parcel Service to stop. So they brought them to the brink and then they pulled back. Now, the UAW is going to get some concessions. The only question is how much concessions and how willing are they to, uh, to put up with that pain? It's going to be difficult. But the, but the on the other side, the capitalists are saying, yeah, but y'all don't understand. I'm trying to make every dollar. Yeah, but you already have a million dollars. Yes, but I don't have a million and one dollar. See, you, you, you've misunderstood the premise. The premise isn't, do I have enough? The premise is, do I have as much as I could get? See, that's what capital, that's the difference. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I need a million and one dollar. Who are these people? Well, that's China. They want to build a factory in, in Alabama where there are no roads. Just, um... Ali Velshi, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, ooh, and and I love this man's brain because he said, you know, this is the foundation of America, That's right? right. That's free, right. free, cheap labor first with the indentured, then oh, free labor, free labor, and it's been off to the races ever since. That's so right. they're not because I was like, this is un-American. He was like, no, it's very American. This very, is the foundation of America financially, free, cheap labor, mm-hmm. and free labor. And how do we get as much as we can for as little as possible? That's right. And then, you know, he walked us through the history of, you know, remember when children could be <laughs> working, in fact, and then, and then labor, and then the unions came. And I'm thinking, again, this is another... Started with us, right? Started with us, our children. If I mean, you look no, at, he, he said, no, no. He started, no, he started with, with Africans. As, as Enslaved labor, right. Yes, right. Enslaved okay, labor. How'd you start with us? Because it wouldn't be in the United States except for the, that thing. Well, that is the crime that enabled everything else. That's and, that's, and, and that's trying to be erased from all history, right? Yeah, because no if way. you start there, then you have to then ex- examine everything. And even your union job, even all of the things that are happening, you got to see it through that lens. That's right. And he laid it out so simply and it was so beautiful. And I sat there and I was like, I'm glad he he's saying that. I don't hear him saying that frequently on MSNBC. Well, him and what's the other guy now? Mehdi Hassan? Yes. That's, oh, yes. That, you know, that, that's about the limits of what you can do because right. they, they too are a business. 
Yes. They're not a public utility. They're not a public resource. They are a business. And I only say, I only bring up MSNBC because I'm grateful to have a space where, well, at least for now, that people can be free to say these things. And if, and you can see the liberation, you well, know, you as he comes have that space. That's what I'm saying. I'm grateful to have a space like this, yes. like on Urban View, where we can have these conversations that we need to have. Because even I was sitting back like, you know, I, I knew it. You 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 know these things fundamentally, but it was like the dots are connected now. And that's part of what In Class with Car does for me. Well, all, of, all of the dots. Well, narrative, Nubia, that's what we're doing. And, 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 and you being able to, to gather enough momentum, to gather enough elements, to get enough of us together and more coming every day, every day, every day to do that. That allows the Velshis and the Hassans to be who they are because they wouldn't be there had there not been the emergence of an alternative that scared the hell out of these people. I mean, that's why you go get the guy to go run CNN who pulled the other people fat out the fire. Why? Because they ain't nobody watching this. It's too it, The technology has enabled too many voices now who ain't buying it. And, 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 and in, this, in this element, it doesn't matter whether some of those voices are completely nuts. It doesn't matter. But more and more people, because you say we're born intelligent. Now, this, again, makes what, what we are all doing in this space. This is what makes the, the narrative platform Nubia so important. This is what makes the hub important. This is what makes Urban Voices important. We have to have places where people can continue to pour clean glasses of water so that people can, using their natural intelligence and just enough will to be able to take a little time out of the impossible rigors of daily life to begin to think and then to begin to connect with other people who are also thinking and move together that's why it's important but Ali Velshi, Mehdi Hassan, folk like that you know Joy Reid from moment to moment Hazer Maddow any of people on MSNBC or any of the other news entertainment complexes when they do strike a chord that sounds correct it is not because the corporate execs decided that we got to do better no and there are some do-gooders among them but that ain't the point it is because they're losing profits. They're losing eyeballs and they've got to figure out a way to attract eyeballs. Now, even, even Fox, I mean, we saw with uh, Murdoch, right? Uh, the same night awaits us all, you know? So Rupert Murdoch at some point going to die like the rest of them. Oh, he is 92. Yeah, he's 92. No, no question, which is a beautiful thing. You got to live out that time. I was looking for the recent issue of Vanity Fair. I have it around here somewhere because I reread the long article on oh, here it is on Musk. Long article on no on um uh from back in the spring on Rupert Murdoch with his children, right? So you know, this one here, the oldest, he will probably take over, right? He's already taking over because Murdoch said he's gonna continue to weigh in. I'm sorry, uh I, the, the, the corporate media said retire, but that's not what he said. He say he's stepping down. He's going to let his son run it, but he's going to be actively involved and continue to be involved. Now, Prof, help us. Why did he, he do that? <laughs> um, I want to say pressure from, <laughs> from, from shareholders. No I want to say that, but you know, the arrogance though of, of these folk, you know, you would think if it were just pressure, a whole lot of people would be stepping down <laughs> or no, just because they got another lawsuit coming. Right. They sell oh, the one with the voting. people. Right. Well, they've settled a Bill O'Reilly lawsuit, a fucker Carlson lawsuit. They, they done settled so many lawsuits that, yes. And but at some the point, now, 
that they depose they depose his deposition murdoch's deposition where he says yeah we knew it was some bullshit yeah that has not been exposed right but it has been because we know that it was said no question but in but this one might it's not gonna bankrupt them but it could absolutely restructure what they're able to do so what you see is okay to me he quit he didn't quit so that the lawyers can say in the lawsuit it's not going to be a winning argument but what they're going to say is well the employee who did that is no longer with us and (laughs) it's his personal liability oh they've already figured it he just retired because he felt a little twang and he broke his back a while back and then you know but the whole point is that no he he quote unquote retired so that he can continue to do what he does he's unfettered his son, LaShawn or whatever, can do can go and do what he's doing. But I'm I'm raising it because when you see these kids, you go to family pictures and all this with the wives and all the children. The other son and the two daughters by the second wife, when the old man is gone, they inherit control of the company. So his little mini me son, the oldest, Lacan, whatever his name is, Murdoch, who does who live in Australia doesn't do the day-to-day, all this kind of thing. And Murdoch said, I'm still going to be in there day-to-day. Y'all going to be hearing from me. I said, this is all cosplay for the people who ain't paying attention. But he may not be there. Why? Now they're saying, oh, the son, the the second son is a a leftist and he's against the Trump thing and he's for global, he's against global warming and he wants Fox to move. Yeah, he ain't no leftist, but he ain't his daddy or his brother. The two daughters, it's a wild card what they're going to do. But say, for example, when Murdoch dies, they take their brother out and take Fox News into another direction, moving it away from the straight white nationalism. Let's say that happens because because the center of their news now, of course, is the news division because they sold off 20th Century Fox. Who did they sell 20th Century Fox to? Prof? I'm trying to remember. Um, oh, yeah. I don't Disney. remember. Disney. Ooh. Disney. That's how come comic book fans, movie fans, that's how come the X-Men can now come into Marvel Cinematic Universe because they were Fox. <laughs> but Murdoch and them got rid of the movies and stuff. They saw, And in fact, they sold it at the high price point before streaming disrupted everything. So they basically baked Disney. But anyway, <laughs> it's hilarious. The point is, all this about the money, right? It's capitalism. So, But Fox may not be able to continue to attract the eyeballs. Uh, Rupert Murdoch created a white nationalist terror propped up Donald Trump, who he's been deposed, say hate Donald Trump and all this kind of thing, Tucker Carlson and them. Hilariously, the Russians apparently have started something on their state television called the Tucker Carlson Show, and Tucker Carlson was in the paper this morning saying, I don't know nothing about that. Yeah, because the genie's out the bottle. The point is this, though. So Fox may have to get away from the nationalist monster that it has fomented over the last 30 years, but it may be too late. MSNBC trying to track eyeballs, CNN trying to track eyeballs because the technology has enabled everybody else to talk and people are like, shit, well, this is good. Let me taste this. Oh, this is clean. You know, I'm going to come over here to narrative. Yeah, because I was drinking MSNBC and then I, but I can, now that I've had some, some narrative water, I'm going to go back over here and look at MSNBC and that's a cool little sip from Hassan. I don't even she that's good. I heard you on Urban View. See, I listen to them every day at Urban View. I, I watch you every once in a while. And I stop watching most of these people all the time. Morning Joe. Ain't nobody watching Morning Joe. Nobody cares. Because Joe Scarborough 
is an American nationalist, which meant for years being a white nationalist. Him and his wife, whose daddy was in charge in part of global white nationalism. Y'all got to keep, but the eyeballs are drying up now. So that's what's allowing these little cracks for people to start telling truth. But here is the ultimate end game. The United States of America is not the world. It will never again be what it was. It will never again be what it was. The myth-making that has people think that somehow the fate of humanity, of the humans who live in the United States, is best served by this country, right or wrong? That propaganda BS that Ken Burns been propping out for the last 40 years with his documentaries, and I watch all Ken Burns documentaries. Ken Burns is the gold standard of American propaganda. Ken Burns gets it when it comes to race. He gets the fact that you ain't, this is not a nation. So he's He's furiously trying to create a nation in all his narratives. He recruits people to come in. Jackson's about American democracy. I understand, Professor Early. I know Gerald Early. You gotta, you gotta say that. You know, you know, jazz is about improvising. Improvising is the most democratic thing. It wasn't no democracy in Greece, went in Marcellus. But I understand the narrative because you, you think you gotta cast your lot with us. And but but Ken Burns is an American nationalist. In that long article, the latest one on the wholly owned subsidiary of white billionaires, Clarence Thomas, is a picture of Clarence Thomas sitting up there in the coat retreat with who? Ken Burns. Why, Ken Burns was there too. Y'all stop acting like, mm -mm, don't do it, y'all. Don't do it. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Burns understands that the only way the United States is going to stay together as some kind of player on the global stage is that it's got to shift its thinking away from the rabid white nationalists to some form of citizenship, citizenship being problematic in some ways. Why? Because citizenship as an ex, as a as an overly exclusionary concept creates a very difficult proposition. You mentioned Canada, Professor Hunter. So Canada, the whitest of the British colonies in North America, Canada, where they still not treating the First Nations peoples right, even though there's a lot more progress there than the United States. But if you ask First Nations people about the multicultural, it'd be interesting to hear Ali Belshi in conversation with a First Nations person, about mm. but which, which, which would be fine. I mean, because the African presence in Canada has always been minimal, not to say that it's been absent. I mean, there's some great books on the history of blacks in Canada. I was kind of think uh, there were Pullman porters in Canada, for example, the railroads went there. But Canada's approach toward immigration has been different. They weren't as largely populated, it's cold, you're bringing people in to work. And so you have a multicultural kind of polyglot in the urban areas. In fact, uh, of course, now that comes with its own challenge. You see India and Canada beefing right now because they got beef over an assassinated Sikh in Canada and India's calling, recalling ambassadors, all this kind of thing. But that comes with the territory when you get a bunch of people together. Come a little further south to the United States and you got a problem. Why? Because this settler state like the Canadian settler state, started by the British and the French, in the United States case, also the Spanish and the Dutch, but the, the British went out. This one is founded on the same expansionist concept, sea to signing sea, as Canada was, but the mix of people was different. The displacement of the indigenous people. For example, we're going to talk about in a minute, you talk about the news this week that uh, the federal government, the, the secretaries of agriculture and education sent letters to all these governors in these states, most of them behind the cotton curtain, saying that just over the last 30 years in funding disparities, you owe historically black colleges $16 billion. 
my alma mater was number one on the list. Tennessee State, over $2 billion. Number two, North Carolina A&T, over $2 billion. Hovering around that mark as well, several other schools that we go through it. Uh, FAMU is owed almost $2 billion. Prairie View in Texas owed almost a billion. Southern almost uh, over a billion. But all those, uh, those HBCUs were founded under the Morrill Land Grant Act of 1890. Justin Morrill, the senator out of Vermont, who in 1861 and 1862, just as they were putting the Confederates out of the federal legislature, proposed that everybody in America doesn't go to school. Very few people go to college. So we're going to uh, take 17 million acres of land and give it to the states. And you can sell part of it and to get money and then build out state universities. That's where University of Iowa comes from, Ohio State University, because it's the Morrill Land Grant of 1862. Comes back in 1890, Senator uh, Morrill, and says, okay, this has been well. A lot of people going to school now. We need to educate our population. Yeah, but we're going to put a caveat in the Morrill Land Grant Act of 1890 to increase what we're doing. We're going to say we're not giving any money to any place that discriminates by race. So I might as well talk about it now, bring it together. And so you can do either one or two things. You either can let black people into the white schools that you've already established and we're going to give you more money to build out. Places like Iowa did that. George Carver got a master's degree from the University of Iowa in chemistry. He's graduate trained in chemistry. Even though he said, I get up in the morning, plants tell me what to do, which Carver always confounded them because his way of knowing was very African, but he also was trained in the hard science that also becomes part of the conversation in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. That's one way you can do it, but the Southern states ain't going to do that. They said, or you can start parallel schools, Jim Crow schools, separate but equal schools, uh, apartheid schools for the blacks. And that's where Tennessee Agricultural and Industrial State College comes from. That's where the Florida Agricultural and Mechanical State College for Negroes comes from. That's where the North Carolina Agricultural and Technical College comes from. That's where Savannah State comes from. That's where the University of Maryland uh, Eastern Shore, formerly known as Maryland State College for Negroes, comes from, and so forth and so forth. Alabama Agricultural and Mechanical State University. That's where those schools come from. That's at the 1890 Act. Now I'm brazen all that to say that. Then they start monitoring and realizing we gave y'all money, we gave y'all land to convert the money, and you're not funding those separate schools the way you fund the white schools. So here's Alabama A&M, and here's Auburn, and Auburn make it got all this money, but you didn't give money to A&M. So in 1914, they see the disparity, but then nobody's keeping good records. The, the Harry Truman and them come along. In the Truman administration, they do an enumeration of sorts, but they're still not keeping good records. Adam, uh, uh, what's the brother's name? Uh, the young cat at the Atlantic. Uh, Adam, his last name will come to me in a minute. He just did a nice article on this in the wake of the uh, the um, the announcement from the Department of Labor and um, Adam Harris. Adam Harris, because he went to Alabama and A&M, if I'm mistaken, the Departments of Labor and, and Education in terms of this bill do. This enumeration we heard this week, this enumeration we heard this week isn't based on since 1890 or when these schools were formed in the wake of 1890. It's just based on the last 30 years. These numbers are just based on the last 30 years. And some of these cats is, is pushing back. They're giving a little smoke. So in Tennessee, uh, when they said, well, you gonna give them the rest of the money? These fools, the governor and these hillbillies in the legislature push back with, look at how much we've done so far. Look at what we've done so far. Plus, we don't agree with those numbers. Of course you don't. In Maryland, 
They just finished a $577 million settlement under Larry Hogan, pushed through by the legislature in Maryland. Many of uh, the legislators in America are HBCU graduates led by Morgan State. They settled with $577 million for Coppin, for Morgan, for Bowie State, for University of Maryland Eastern Shore. And they still say that they owe them, they owe the University of Maryland Eastern Shore $321 million. So the letter went to Westmore too. Joe Biden was just up there, Westmore, Prince George's County, talking about education this week. Well. Moore's like, I got you. I mean, I understand. The legislature is like, yeah, we need to, we need to do that. And at the same time, the white schools like Towson, they're trying to start a business administration master's program right now in violation of the federal law, which says you can't have program duplication. That's one of the problems that you have with this separate equal stuff. I don't want to get too far down on this. I'm coming back to the point I wanted to make, which is why, even though I'm using this as a footnote to talk about the news this week, that this that this uh, enumeration came this this 16 billion dollar uh you owe them letters came down and they're already beginning to defy it, it like they gonna pay but it's good to establish but that's a footnote to the point i wanted to make 17 million acres of land 10 million of those acres were taken directly from indigenous people in the united states of america so if ali velshi was sitting with a first nations person in canada he or she would quickly remind him that, yeah, while it's a wonderful place that we see in Canada with all these different people, never forget it's a settler state. And it began with the dispossession of our people. Now, go ask my cousin on the other side of the Canadian U.S. border how the U.S. been doing. And that response might be, we've got this great public education system that came by giving all this land, but the land you gave, you took. And when you create a situation in a settler state, which is what the United States is, which is what Canada is, which is what every state in the hemisphere is. When you ask who is responsible, who is responsible, who determines our emancipation, that would be the people who live in those states. But they don't determine it by blind loyalty to the state. They don't determine it by not understanding how the state works and how business works, because all these states were formed pursuant to capitalism. The ones in the Caribbean, pure slave colonies. And then once Africans either fought their way out of enslavement, like Haiti, or it became not profitable for uh, the continuing enterprise to look the way it did, like when the British, who get all this credit, the British eliminated uh, slavery. They, they eliminated slavery in the 19th century. Why did they do it? They did it in part because their economic interests began to diminish. And then they turned around and went into Africa directly. So don't be cute about why they about it wasn't like Wilbur William Wilberforce gave a speech in 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 the house in in the house of lords in uh or the house no not the house of lords the lower chamber in England and they were all like oh my God you're right send the ships we're gonna stop slavery no 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 they counted up the cost they took Shirley Murdoch's advice you should have counted up the cost no they counted up the cost and they said no slavery's not profitable in the way it was so we're gonna cut off slavery for our competition y'all can't come down here and get no more people out of africa why because if you keep getting people out of africa we may have a problem but anyway the settler states have been set up by them portuguese and brazil spanish and pretty much the rest of what we call latin america all up through central america with elements in the caribbean north america the british then the americans dispossess florida from the spanish and Louisiana from the French before that, the Spanish, and then California, and they just keep going from sea to shining sea. So what you set up is a criminal enterprise, like all the rest of the states in the hemisphere, but you set it up on profit with state formations as a placeholder for economic power, okay? 
but the people whose labor you're exploiting is too many of them to manage. And in the case of the United States, it's a federated state. It's a federal state, meaning what? Because it's a federal state, different people, different places got different ideas on what they're going to do. So probably a minute ago, we're talking about the question of freedom, freedom and labor. Well, here on the anniversary of the passing of the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, September 1862, where Abraham Lincoln basically gives the Southern states four months to come back to the Union, after which he said, I'm going to pull the trigger on uh, January 1st, 1863, on the Emancipation Proclamation, which says that anybody enslaved in any states that are in rebellion to the Union are free, which is kind of a joke because you didn't free the people in the places you could because Maryland was loyal to the Union, Tennessee loyal to the Union, and you didn't end enslavement there. It took the 13th Amendment for that. But the point is that Lincoln is nervous because he don't want to uh, the Emancipation Proclamation is part war measure. He's trying to win the war. He realizes that a lot of white people, millions of them, are not against slavery like that. Some of them pro-slavery, many of them indifferent. In places like New York, in places like Maryland, in places like Maine, and places like that. Why? Because it doesn't affect them and impact them, except maybe dilatoriously, maybe harming them if you get rid of slavery, which is why some of the people in New York City went to the mayor and said, you got to go to the governor of New York City, uh, of New York State in Albany and tell him that if, they, if South Carolina leaves the union, New York State needs to go too. Why? Because you know how much stuff we ship out of New York that comes from the South? It's going to harm our business. And meanwhile, these Southerners in South Carolina, John C. Calhoun and boys saying, we can run the whole thing out of Charleston. We'll make Charleston bigger than New York because we got all the resources that we, we going to ship the cotton out. And, and France, England, y'all stay out the war now because I know y'all don't really feel that some kind of way. I know some liberty, equality, fraternity jazz or whatever. But y'all remember Haiti, don't you? Yeah, we're going to take this black labor that you lost and we're going to continue with their cousins and we'll ship it out to y'all. So there's all kind of geopolitics going on. I'm saying all that to say this. Lincoln is an expansionist too. He wants to go from sea to shining sea. And remember by the 1850s, they've got California in. That's the compromise of 1850. Bringing in California, bringing in Maine, bringing in uh, them as free states. But then you've got the fugitive slave law. So if you find a Negro walking around in a so-called free state, you ask them for some papers, they ain't got no papers, they snatch them. And now you Solomon Northrop. Your ass is in Louisiana, 12 years a slave. The point is that the compromises have been, have been made in order to keep the polity together. The polity is a criminal enterprise based on uh, radically inequitable uh, uh, human behavior, the dispossession of the aboriginals, the enslavement of the Africans. And then you bring in labor from other places because you know that labor is the engine. The Canadians today or the Americans of the 1850s understand that labor is what's going to make all this work. You haven't gotten to the point where the technology is going to make labor obsolete. We'll come to that in a minute. But the point is this. What does emancipation look like and who determines emancipation? For the, for the people who are not yet white, who are leaving Ireland, who are free, fleeing Europe, coming to the United States, emancipation looks like anywhere is better than this. Anywhere is better than this. Two generations before, it was Benjamin Banneker's grandmother, Molly. 
the Irish woman who was being who was working as a milkmaid and they kicked uh, the cow kicked over the milk. They blamed her. Now they're going to ship her into indentured servitude. She ends up in Maryland, busts her ass with a bunch of other people, gets a little land. I got enough money now to buy a slave, goes to the auction, sees Benjamin Banneker's grandfather on the block, their eyes locked. Not only does she buy him, she frees him and takes her last, takes his last name. True story. What the hell? Now they'll make a movie of that and make that a proxy for all relations in America. No, that's an outlier. The reality is these people got on boats fleeing the inequities where they were from, not the pilgrims, that's garbage. Meaning anywhere is better than this, they get here and they say, okay, you can bust your ass here too. Can I? Yeah. And in exchange, we'll give you a couple of coins. Need maybe get a couple of more coins. And we're still expanding. We're going out west. Yeah, we're taking land from these indigenous people you ain't never met and you might be able to have some land. Oh, what the hell? So now they get the American dream. Oh, and here's another thing. What? We're going to give you this status that keeps the rich people away from all you poor people. What's that? That would be whiteness. As Gerald Horn always says, whiteness, the battle pay for protecting the people with all the money from the masses who ain't got much money and the, even more than that, who ain't got no money. And you racialize it because you, you this is all based on the illogic of race. See them black people over there? Well, they against you. But we don't, none of us have money. Yes, but you're white. What's white? White? Yeah, watch this. Get off the sidewalk, nigga. Yeah. Damn. That does feel kind of good. Okay, I'll take that whiteness. I, I'll fight them for you. So as this expansion is going, Lincoln is an expansionist. But the free soilers are like, you're not going to continue the engine of this enterprise on slavery. You got them doing it for moral reasons, but you also have the business people. It's bad for business. We don't need it. The Southerners, their whole economy is based on slavery. And guess what? So was the whole countries. So now by the end of the 1850s, you got a split that it was inevitable. It was going to happen because of our stolen labor. So what happens? The Civil War. And after the Civil War, they have a chance to do something different in this settler state now, because they're going now from sea to shining sea. They've completed that. They're going to add states, but they're still going now from the Atlantic to the Pacific. The Canada border has been established. The Mexican border kind of soft because they really wanted to annex Mexico. Go back and look at, uh, at Grant and all them guys. But the Confederacy had beat them to the dream. They wanted the Confederacy to go all the way to the tip of South America, but they broke the back of the Confederacy. We broke the back of the Confederacy. 200,000 almost Africans fought in the U.S. Army and Navy, and that's just the people who were officially enrolled, about 189,000. The point is this. After the war, they got a chance. If they could have got over their racism, Lincoln's dead, bullet in the head. Here come Andrew Johnson, who was the provisional governor in Tennessee during the war. Then he puts him on the ticket. Then he gets killed. Johnson is dead. You could have given the land to the people you had enslaved. Still doesn't satisfy the problem of dispossession of the aboriginals, which is why when we say we work, we built this country, everybody slow their roll. There were some people here before. I get we built this country, but you you are you are expressing fidelity to a criminal enterprise. Do you really want credit for that uncritically? Let's think about this. Because if you're going to build a new thing, we have to clean out the wound of the old thing. I know you don't think we do. We can just forget all the past and just move forward. But here's how the past works. The past is going to, in fact, the present, affect the present, whether you remember it or not. It's a very important point. But Lincoln wants to win the election of 1860. He wins the election of 1860. Then you got 1864 looming. Got to win the election of 1864. Wins the election of 1864. But part of the problem with the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation and then the ultimate Emancipation Proclamation is you don't want to piss off too many people in the North who are racist. 
Because once you pass the Emancipation Proclamation, even the preliminary one, 1862, then by 1863, the one that goes into effect January 1st, 1863, guess who gets pissed off? Because now they like, oh, you didn't tell, oh, wait, hold on, I ain't sign up. Y'all told me whiteness gave me something. 1863, look at the New York City draft riots with the Irish who were going around, not all the Irish, but enough of them to be black people. Say, I don't trust none of y'all now. Why? Trying to burn black people, lynch black people, all this stuff is going on. Why? Because you are taking my whiteness away from me. Or at least I think you are. I just got off the boat. You and me going to put on uniform and fight in the South. I don't know no black people. And I thought you said black people were N-words. Well, they are. But so, so why am, are we, is this war to end slavery? Well, no, it's to preserve the union. Yeah, but and now I'm down here and I, I'm in a year, I'm looking up. Here's one of these people who you say the war is not to free and they got on a uniform like I got on and they want equal pay. What the hell is going on? See, the criminal enterprise is it's all baked in. But what is coming is this. We here now. We here. We having this conversation approaching 190 straight Saturdays in English. We here now. It's in our mouths. It's in our minds. It's commingled. I'm not talking about the myth making. That shit never works. I think Ken Burns is a great filmmaker. I enjoy watching his because I love to see how he makes these leaps of logic and tries to shoehorn the magnitude of Africana ways of knowing and cultural meaning making and movement and memory into that narrow ass social structure. And every time it busts, they go for the pull, break glass in case of emergency word. <laughs> Democracy. Democracy, please. Okay, you won't believe me. Let me go get Marcellus. Uh, let me go get uh, Margot Jefferson. Uh, let me go get uh, 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 Gerald Early. Uh, we, uh, or we'll get some of the people who lived it and who took the ass whippings, and they'll tell the truth, and then we'll get a, a talking head to come in and, and soften it. So we'll get Buck O'Neill to say what happened to him in the Negro Leagues. You know, we'll pull Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe and talk about the Negro Leagues. We might pull um, uh, uh, John Hendricks to talk about jazz and being on the, uh, uh, on the ship and how he heard Charlie Parker and him playing Salt Peter and said, play that record again. And then you show the battleship going with the American flag to make it look like John Hendricks was on that ship because he was a patriot and not because he was drafted. But, you know, although now it's an all-volunteer army, this is another footnote, by the way, and we see Ed Bloom, the billionaire, dropping another level of the pretense now because they kept the military academies out of their SFFA versus North Carolina, SFFA versus Harvard, the affirmative action cases that the wholly owned subsidiary of billionaires, uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, his friend, uh, Beer Kavanaugh, who had all his debts suddenly disappear. ProPublica, I know y'all own that. All these bombs going to be dropping to the degree that you know they won't make any difference. But after they overturn that, now Bloom's back at the trough. What is he coming back with? They just sued West Point. 29 page uh, suit uh, document, reading through the document. What's their argument? You're using affirmative action in West Point to let in uh, people instead of test scores. Instead, and, you know, to get into West Point, you got to have a letter from a senator or a president. You got to have the test scores and grades. West Point now is not majority uh, non white, but it's close. And the officer corps in the United States Army reflects closer to the enlisted, because it's all volunteer army. The military, who filed an amicus brief in the affirmative action cases, anticipating what Bloom was going to do, is basically saying, you know, you're about to mess up the morale. You can't have all white officers or damn near all white officers and a and an all volunteer military that doesn't look like that. It's going to be a problem. You're going to make problems for us. 
So Bloom is suing, and you know, and of course, if 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 they win against West Point, that means all the other academies are going to have to fall in line. And so the possibility of people like General Charles Brown, Charles Q. Brown, who was just uh, appointed the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, after Kurt Tiberville. Uh, got out the way and they had a closer vote in the Senate this week and made three appointments because you about to have all these vacant positions as the secretaries of your military and the Joint Chiefs of Staff is going to be uh, vacant. So Kurtz Tuberville, the senator from Alabama, who the, the fine corn pone white nationalist dumbass voters of Alabama, white ones, voted for instead of Doug Jones, who was white too, but Doug Jones prosecuted the last Klansman that blew up those children in Birmingham that we talked about last week. You replaced him with Kurt Tuberville, a football coach. But we also know that that's what makes you popular if you're a football coach of any color. But the point is this, the whole question of destabilizing the military becomes important because back out of the footnote, back into the narrative we're talking about, which is the expansion of this settler enterprise and how you hold it together. The, the, the military is how you defend the settler enterprise from other countries. It's also metaphorically the way you try to sell people on the idea that this is a multiracial um, experiment. People say the military is the best example of how people work, come together and work. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, you might want to ask Dory Miller about that. Uh, you might want to ask the, the black women who were in the Women's Army Corps about that. Uh, you might want to ask any number of people. You might go back to the 19th century. How many times have we talked about Colonel Charles Young? You might want to ask him about that at West Point or Henry Flipper at West Point. But now we ain't going to belabor the point on what the military does or doesn't do. We know that it is used as a metaphor for how the rest of the country could do. It's just based on achievement. It's just based on accomplishment. It's just based on talent. Okay, so you're saying that's what America is. Not yet, but America will be. Langston Hughes said America never was America to me, but this I vow, America will be. If Langston Hughes could talk today to these two cats right here, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zablat, you probably heard those names before. They wrote that book a couple of years ago, remember, Prof, uh, How Democracies Die. They're back with a new book. This one just came out this month. Tyranny of the Minority by the New York Times bestselling authors of How Democracies Die. Tyr tyranny of the Minority. This is what they say. And I'll go out to the last chapter. The last chapter, which is entitled, well, not the acknowledgement, Democratizing Our Democracy. This is what they say. As the civil rights generation passes into history, and there were two who passed into history this week, who we'll talk about in a minute as we kind of wind up in a second. As the civil rights generation passes into history, the work of building a truly multiracial democracy falls upon us. Future generations will hold us to account. This is what they say. The United States of America will either become a multiracial democracy or cease to be a democracy at all. They trace the history of this settler state. It's actually a good book, but I mean, this has been done a billion times before. And as far as I'm concerned, it's been done better in some ways by people like Lerone Bennett and Vincent Harding. Now, the thing that uh, Levitsky and Zablat contribute to this, I think, which is good, they give an updated accounting for countries around the world. So they talk about how, for example, and it's interesting because I remember, you know, reading in chapter, let me see if I can flip to it right quick. Um, maybe it's chapter five. Was it chapter five? Fettered? No, America the Outlier. America the Outlier, which is chapter seven. It talks about Norway, 
how Norway democratized. Now they have ethnic, they have ethnic minorities too, but they would all be considered white here. United States whiteness kind of blinds us to the fact of differences in places in Europe. But they talk about all these different ways that these other countries in Europe have changed their uh, frameworks, their constitutional frameworks. The United States is an outlier. Chapter seven, America, the outlier is very interesting because here's the thing. Here's what the United States has that none of these other countries have anymore. Germany, Sweden, even Argentina, places like that, Brazil, New Zealand. This is what they don't have. They don't have an elite upper chamber anymore. Even England got rid of the House of Lords like that. He writes through how they did that. They write how they did that. What we have in the United States, the United States Senate, set up by settler crimes so that every state has two senators. That bakes in the tyranny of the minority because as white people come to the, the demographic minority in the United States of America, as long as South Dakota and North Dakota got two seats, as long as Utah got two seats, California looking like, what the hell? We got everybody in the whole damn country living in California and y'all making laws for the rest of us. We got two senators, you got two senators. That's some bullshit. Well, we don't care. So what Zablat um, and Levitsky says, that got to change. Of course, the Electoral College, they talk about that. No other quote unquote democracy does not have direct election rules. One person, one vote. United States of America, no. We've set it up so that we will continue to have a minority. Now, I'm not saying that those minorities can't be overrun in places like with multiracial coalitions anchored in blackness in terms of political process. It's not that they can't be overrun in places like Alabama, in places like Mississippi, in places like Louisiana. Uh, of course, the Congressional Black Caucus is in town this week. On Thursday night, I went to see my friend Melina Abdullah and her comrades, all the people who were out in L.A. this summer. We did, we did it in class from L.A. this summer uh, for the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter grassroots had their um, had a convening on Thursday night. This is their report from last year, Black Lives Matter grassroots. Um, very important. Uh, Melina and all of their comrades. I mean, really, to be in that room with so many very, I mean, freedom fighters. These Negroes, 10 toes down, freedom fighters. I'm telling you right now, they don't play. Uh, and so, you know, Baba Keeley was good to see him. I mean, so many other people I could talk about, but I'm going to mention one in particular who was there. Oh, and happy birthday, Julianne Malvo. She just turned 70 uh, yesterday. Um, like I said, seasoned freedom fighters. But sitting there Thursday, you know, talk, sitting there with the family to parents and families of women and men who've been killed by the police and police violence, listening to how organizing is taking place. Even as we understand in the social structure, these people get berated, get berated. Oh, these radicals, they'll go to hell. We're not safe. So don't tell me about that. We still not safe right now. So, but about maybe about, maybe about an hour in, a sister was asked to get up and talk about you know, how we must continue this fight to in, in qualified immunity. And that would be, of course, our sister from the Boston area, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Beautiful sister. I mean, seriously, she said, let me tell y'all something. I am a bodacious black woman. I am all about the fight to restructure. And she's funny. She's a politician. She said, my love language is policy. She says, I am in the Congress 
to end this oppression. And we have to do this. And so she started talking in great detail about qualified immunity. This is where people say, oh, the Democrats and the Republicans are the same. <laughs> Don't be ignorant. Drink a clean glass of water. Get your mind right, because you have the natural intelligence. It's just that the propaganda has blinded us to this. It's people like Ayanna Presley in the legislature, or Rashida Tlaib. It's, it's people like Ilhan Omar or Ocasio-Cortez. Yes, we can have policy differences on some things, but they all ten toes down on unqualified immunity, because before them, uh, the brothers and sister from Florida were talking about how their son was killed, and the cops are acquitted, and then they go to court, and, and well, not acquitted, they go to um, they go to to trial. And the jury, an all-white jury, convicts the cops. But guess what? Qualified immunity. Qualified immunity provides the fail-safe for these damn killers, these hunters. So Yana Presley's like, it's got to go. It can't be reformed. It shouldn't be reformed. It's got to be eliminated. But there's not enough of her in the federal legislature. How do you get more of them? Well, we can't get them from Alabama. We can't get them from Mississippi. Sure you can. That's why they suing so hard and going to send another case against the Voting Rights Act to Beer Kavanaugh, who has invited them through the language in the 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 uh, the, 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 the Milligan case out of Alabama in the previous term, this past summer's term uh, decision, to come on back here. Maybe we can take another swing at this Voting Rights Act. And the wholly owned subsidiary of billionaires, Clarence Thomas, with his minder Jenny in Northern Virginia is poised to join him. But the point is this, we don't even get to test that unless everybody organizes and votes. And if everybody organizes and votes, you got a chance of breaking the back of this thing, which is why Levitsky and Zablat are saying it's either gonna be a multiracial democracy or it won't be a democracy. Meanwhile, in Beijing, Meanwhile, in Kinshasa, meanwhile, in Dakar, meanwhile, in Ouagadougou and Burkina Faso, meanwhile, in uh, in Moscow, meanwhile, in um, Brasilia, the capital of the country of Brazil, they all sitting back like meanwhile in Mexico City, where they got their own challenge with immigration because the United States is saying you can't come to the United States. So all the people ended up in Mexico and they trying to figure it out. Meanwhile, around the world, they're looking like, yeah, you won't be a democracy. You might not even be a country. You might not even be a country. Because while you're tearing yourself apart on white supremacy, we were out here trying to partner up so we can figure out some kind of ways to get beyond the empire. And all them people not on the same page. Why? Because it's the world. And guess what? The world is nine-tenths non-white. So you see the United States out of desperation while we here domestically talking about things that are domestic. Biden is on talking with the Vietnamese. Can we get together? Vietnam's like, yeah, we can get together. Why? Because we kind of scared of China too. And then meanwhile, the Chinese are in North Korea. Say, yeah, we, we need to get a little closer together. Y'all need to do what we do. The South Koreans like, what the hell? We trying to establish something with North Korea too. Because we've been meanwhile, and by the way, they, they, think about that. You fought a whole ass Vietnam War. The elders now aging out, becoming ancestors who fought the Vietnam War. And the United States trying to get in bed with the Vietnamese because they're terrified of the Chinese. All this is going on while we're here talking about domestic issues and this country is embraced and continues to embrace the white nationalism that it was founded on. Except that white nationalism used very cynically by those who own for being continuing to be ginned up like the Murdochs of the world among those who ain't got a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of who are in those states like Alabama and Mississippi and places like that who love black people as long as they are running up and down a field whether it be Tuscaloosa, Alabama or Boulder, Colorado but who understand nothing about the fact that all that's doing is enriching those who will never look at them as anything other than tools what these two are saying in the, tier of the minority is that 
that group, increasingly small, is going to wreck the framework that has never been for everybody. And the only chance you have for it to be for everybody or closer to everybody is to embrace everybody. So they go on to say, okay, you got this unequal legislature. Senate should be abolished in the way that it's organized. You got to have proportional representation. You elect a president by an electoral college instead of one person, one vote, which means you got a minority picking Supreme Court justices. And that's where they talk about the Supreme Court justices. You got lifetime tenure for judges. That ain't nowhere except the United States of America federal bench. It's not even in the states. I think Rhode Island's the only uh, state in the United States where you get lifetime tenure as a judge. You're either term limited or limited by age. And if they can't, like in Wisconsin, if they can't win an election, now they want to go to the law and try to figure out a way to get a justice off the bench at the state level. And their fail safe is the criminal enterprise, increasing criminal enterprise called the white nationalists on the bench of the federal judiciary. Wholly owned subsidiaries like Clarence Thomas sitting up at the Koch brothers retreat with his friend, the architect of the federal society, Leonard Leo. Clarence, baby. Pinpoint Georgia, Gullah Geechee man, your grandfather's son, as you often say. Clarence, the stain on you is epic. It's a terrible stain, brother, but it's a stain nonetheless. Now, this young boy in, in Dallas is going to join you in the club of, you know, whatever. But mm, at the end of the day, what we are facing in this country with this larger question, who determines our emancipation? We do. There is no social structure. This is what, it's, it's funny, really. Let me one more thing about this book, Tyranny and Minority. The last chapter, chapter eight, democratizing our democracy. They're always being clever. You want us to help. You want us to help you now. They are both professors of government at Harvard University. They're John Harvard's plantation. A plantation, by the way, that was set up on the backs of African labor, the Harvard's, uh, John Harvard having uh, extensive interest in the Caribbean in terms of slavery, which is that Harvard report they talked about. It's hilarious to me. Now you get to sit back a couple, uh, three, four hundred years later and talk about the thing like, you know, the original crime ain't what set the whole thing in place. And you can even gesture toward it, which is why it's very important. As we talked about in narrative, we talk about in Nubia, we have our own publishing companies, our own platforms. Why? Because a lot of things in here have been said many times by our people and I'm not for continuing to reinforce prestige for people who are connected to entities that are not only part of the criminal enterprise, but continue to maintain the criminal enterprise. By the way, I should have mentioned this, uh, that $16 billion that is owed HBCUs. You know, what's interesting about that is that uh, Candid and ABF uh, e found that eight Ivy League schools received about five and a half billion dollars from the thousand largest U.S. corporations, compared with forty-five million for ninety-nine HBCUs in twenty nineteen, and that between twenty two thousand two and twenty nineteen, foundation support for HBCUs from the same places declined twenty percent. But you know when it spiked? Who determines our emancipation? When you killed Ahmed Aubrey in Georgia, when the police, young Dan Cameron running for governor of Kentucky, y'all better vote and make sure that guy who let the killers of Breonna Taylor go home and sleep at night, young Dan Cameron, when they killed Breonna Taylor, 
in Kentucky. And then when Big George Floyd was killed after Liberation Day weekend and Memorial Day weekend in the United States in Minnesota. Well, we got in the streets, not just black people, a lot of other people too. Who determines our emancipation? We do. And them companies got scared as hell and threw all kind of money. And in 2020, the year after this report I just mentioned, there's a 453% increase in foundation support, corporate support for HBCUs. They went up to almost $250 million. And that ain't counting the $550 million that Mackenzie Scott gave to 22 HBCUs just that year. So in other words, you think people just giving money? You know what? We've been thinking wrong about this. Give money. Wait, wait do you hear that? Do you hear that? You smell that? Is that smoke? Shit. <laughs> Who determines our emancipation? UAW is not going to get a raise because they asked. UAW is going to get a raise because they said, today they said they're extending the strike to the parts manufacturing plants. Oh, shit. We got to give them some money, man. Who determines our emancipation? The people determine our emancipation. Many years ago, Jonathan Shell wrote a book called The Unconquerable World. He said, here are the two unstoppable forces in America, I mean, in the world right now. One is nuclear weapons. The other is the people. Not the government's. The people, enough people decide, the whole thing transforms. If enough people decide, in fact, uh, I, I wasn't even expecting this. One of one of my old heads, man, old alpha elder brother, um, emailed me on Thursday and was like, I agree with what you said in the Washington Post today. I said, I was in the Washington Post. I was at I was teaching my classes. I came out, so I went and got a copy of the post. And <laughs> One of, one, one of your colleague uh, journalists, uh, Kevin Blackstone, my man Kevin Blackstone, who's a professor at the University of Maryland, also columnist for the Washington Post, he wrote an article, Sanders can change a culture, but will he? And he says, uh, as Colorado prepared to kick off to Colorado State to start what became a thrilling double overtime college football game watched by ESPN late night record, 9.3 million viewers last weekend, shout out ESPN, there was a ping pong game in the Colorado team locker room ostensibly overseen by its head coach, Deion Sanders. It featured legendary rapper Master P, founder of No Limit Records, Lone Limit Records, against Offset, a member of the hip award-winning hip-hop group Migos. Then Sanders had rapper Lil Wayne, whose gun conviction was pardoned by former President Donald Trump, lead the Buffaloes onto Folsom Field in Boulder with a performance of Wayne's classic, Ride for My Ends. Boulder is home to a little more than 100,000 residents, 89% of whom are white, 1% of whom are black. Kevin writes, and the place went wild. Lil Wayne, Offset, and Master P were later joined in cheering Sanders' Buffaloes by Memphis rapper Key Glock, who owes his nom de rap to what the Violence Policy Center has reported as the favorite handguns of mass shooters. The scene in Boulder prompted Greg Carr. I'm like, whoa, oh, this one man was talking about. <laughs> A Howard University professor of African American Studies and of Law and one of the architects of the AP African American History course that reactionary Florida Governor Ron Sanders attacked as political to denounce the public theater of Colorado football on social media as, quote, plantation college athletics, end quote, and, quote, minstrelsy on steroids. Like, damn, Kevin, why would you? Because at least, Sand he writes, at least Sanders is cashing in on the black culture he imported to Colorado. Although some people seem to think he's put an HBCU there. I, looking at the enrollment numbers, don't quite think that's it. Y'all should stop by that noise. Along with his indubitable inspirational talent and coaching acumen that has the Buffaloes 3-0 ranked in the top 20 in the talk of all sports. The real revolution, though, the one that could change college football, hasn't yet begun. 
He says, Sanders signed a contract with which he'll pocket around $5.5 million per year. His commercial appeal is such that it was hard to remember in the game when he didn't appear hawking some product. He's selling mirrored sunglasses, he sports on the sidelines, and handed out to media members far too eager to suspend skepticism to be a party to the ride. And some of his players are profiting too, saying Shadour is now worth arguably $5.1 million in name, imaging, and licensing. Finally, he says what Sanders is doing with black culture on the sports stage isn't new, of course, but as Carr alluded, Sanders, under the guidance of a PR woman trained in the NFL's marketing offices, Constance Schwartz Marini, who has worked with everyone from Michael Strahan and, and, and Aaron Andrews to Snoop Dogg and Wiz Khalifa, is daring a dangerous walk as a black coach between his use of black culture and the freedom to be who he might be. I should mention one other thing. Ellis Cashmore. Uh, who wrote a book, and I can't put my hands on it now, called The Black Culture Industry. He quotes Cashmore, who says, quote, inflating the significance of black culture may work against tangible enhancements to the lives of African-Americans. The most significant value of black culture may be in providing whites with proof of the end of racism while keeping the racial, and I would add economic, hierarchy intact. That's at a university that has about 1% black male enrollment. But my man ran out there leading them people onto the field with ride for my ends. My man, Lil Wayne, the Carter. Yeah. Anyway, add a footnote. Wow. <laughs> and yet we will still watch today. So it's, it's uh, oh my God. Of course, how do we, we don't watch. How do we navigate this? Ow. Well, Levitsky and Zablat said either it's going to be a multi-duration democracy or it's not going to be a democracy. Here's the problem. As Michael Bennett runs for re-election in the uh, Colorado uh, Senate race, I doubt that any ath athletic coach, certainly not a black one, is going to endorse a political candidate. Unless you're Kurt Tiberville. Or maybe after he decides he's going to finally get involved in electoral politics, either in his home state of Louisiana or in the state of Tennessee, uh, 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 a white quarterback like, oh, I don't know, not Brett Favre, but who am I thinking about? Oh, Peyton Manning decides he's going to run. Or another white nationalist maybe decides he wants to run from Massachusetts and counts on, you remember them days when Tom Brady was slinging it around and you vote for him because you liked him as a football player. So this is the problem of the stupid American vote. I wonder could Deion Sanders be elected as dog catcher in Colorado. They love him as a ball coach, but if he ran for Senate, who knows? I don't care. I don't know. But actually, I do care greatly because this is the noise that prevents us because we have been surrounded by it. It's not a question of us wanting to have this happen. It's that all this noise just prevents us from being able to focus on the fact or be even be aware of the fact that the stealing is just getting more and more. And what they're saying here, the Visky and Zablat are that if you don't have people in the process deeply, structurally, the thing is going to collapse. So as I'm, si I'm sitting there Thursday night with my friends, many of them long range freedom fighters, um, Ross Satchel, like I said, I mean, all these people who I know for many years and, you know, it's because I ain't go to the Congressional Black Caucus uh, events in the daytime. Sent students down there, asked them what they thought. I've been many times. I presented down there before. And I always leave inspired, I leave instructed, and I leave depressed. Because it's like you see the stuff that's going on, you're aware of a lot of stuff, you become aware of other stuff, you connect people who are doing work, you know, and then you realize though that in order to bust this out, we're going to have to have a different level 
of commitment. The theme this year, while the United Nations is talking about sustainable, sustainable development, the Congressional Black Caucus Week was talking about building generational wealth. See, that's the big thing in the United States now, building generational wealth. Generational wealth is important, but understand the ultimate wealth is your human value as a person. If you're going to build your objectives around capitalism, then what you're going to do is ground yourself in a form of nativist logics that puts profit and puts personal comfort over solidarity politics with people globally. Because And then you'll be, so, who, who you know who's going to be the most surprised when this whole country is faced with and begins to experience severe implications of what's going on around the world in terms of people coming together or people withdrawing support or people putting up barriers. It's going to be the people who live in the United States because the propaganda has people here, has us all believing that somehow what we do is in control of the world. Facts. You know, Facts. You, you, you know that, but. I was going to say if Deion Sanders ran for office in Colorado, he would win. Look how close Herschel Walker got. We love our athletes. So well, yeah, he would have to say Walker. Could he win? Could he win saying what Herschel Walker? Could he win if he didn't say what Herschel Walker oh, said? He's got them good Christian values, Doctor Carr. He, uh, you know, Ooh, that's true. That's he played point. on on the on America's team. That like don't don't he could he could win. There, there's a weird suspension of reality with folk where and and they also because most people don't want to think that they're racist. It's so then that point. allows them to check. You know, I'm not. I voted for Deion Sanders. It's a great point. It's a great point. Oh my God. Let's not give him any ideas. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Let's not give him any ideas. We're gonna wind this up in a minute. Okay. I, I, I do want to mention this though, that um, you know, institutions aren't built or sustained by people who can't see why they built them. They aren't built or sustained by people who aren't part of them. And often there can be conflicting agendas. Today, we're talking about who determines our emancipation. The reason we're talking about it is because, of course, it is the anniversary of the uh, signing of the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation by Abraham Lincoln. But when you're dead, you're gone. You become an ancestor. And the people who are here have to work out the material reality. Rupert Murdoch, bruh, you're going to die just like me. And then your children going to fight. They're going to take it from your oldest if the tea leaves can be trusted. And maybe they move Fox away from where it is. But that cat's out the bag. It's walking around, scratching the shadow people. So you didn't you didn't made a mess over the last 60, 70 years. Man. You didn't made a mess. And you didn't start from where we started from. You, ain't, you damn sure ain't start where Karen Hunter started from. You didn't start where Greg Carr started from. You ain't, you, ain't, you ain't start from where anybody watching this on YouTube, anybody in Nubia right now, and who are watching in coming days and weeks, months, you didn't start where we started. You start because your daddy had a company, you had a little newspaper company to give it to you. And then you bought and you moved. And then now you got this global empire that you built on white nationalism, the Aussies, and Australian white nationalism. And your son, apparently just like you in some ways, the oldest. But you got to go. And then the next generation is going to reap what you sowed, what your daddy sowed. What that generation sows, what you people who dispossessed the aboriginals of Australia sowed, what your settler colonial capitalist enterprise sowed. But the point is that people don't build or sustain institutions without knowing what they're trying to do. So when you fight for us, when you talk about who determines our emancipation, you got to determine who is our. 
Eric Johnson in Dallas has determined. He's saying, oh, crime-infested cities, it's the Democrats' fault. So I ran as a Democrat yesterday, and today I'm going to switch to Republican because I know I couldn't win as a Democrat in Dallas. Okay, son, you're over there now. Now you can't go to barbershop. Now you can't go to church. Now you're going to get roasted walking down the street. But it's okay because whatever they paid you or whatever you thought you could do, your emancipation was more important than our emancipation. You're a liar, and that's okay. You read the tea leaves. Your friend Greg Abbott, who's down there talking about, oh, welcome, welcome. Your friend Ted Cruz, who you've been on his podcast and all that, that's your friend. But guess what? You got to die too. Now you're going to trash. And you don't understand, not that you will care. You'll be an ancestor. Maybe you can duke it out. With, I was rereading a book. This is, very, this is a brother named uh, George Washington Lee. He was a lieutenant in World War I. It's called the Lieutenant Lee of Beale Street. This brother was a Republican. He was a lieutenant of, after he got out of the military, he was lieutenant of Bob Church, who we've talked about many times. Those of you new to Nubia, or if you're watching this and haven't joined there, you know, we had a long conversation about Mary Church Terrell, about her father, Bob Church, about the politics of Memphis. He was a Republican. He was a Republican because it helped deliver resources to black people. Then after church passes, he lines up with Boss Crump in Memphis. He gets roasted by the next generation. He was born in 18, 1894 in Mississippi. He made transition in, I want to say, 1990, no, no, 1987, something like that. He lived through Jim and Jane Crow, the civil rights, black power era. His story is fascinating. Most of the people, used, for everybody from Booker T. Washington to Martin Luther King, you see in this book from Ida Bell Wells to Stokely Carmichael, they all through the life of this man. His politics were shaped by one single objective, regardless. And then they put him out the Democratic Party. I'm sorry, Republican Party. It's a fascinating story in here because he worked for Herndon, uh, the life insurance company, North Carolina Mutual. He was the agent in Memphis. No, no. In Atlanta, not 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 North Carolina Mutual. Hearns in Atlanta, the Atlanta Life Life Insurance Company. He's Republican. So remember the election of 1960. Nixon's running for office. This brother, George Washington Lee, gets a call from Atlanta. A brother who's there in the life insurance and calls and says, "Look, you need to tell Dr. King is in jail." You need to tell your man's Nixon to say something about it. Now, we've all heard the story. You know, Kennedy made the call to Coretta Scott King, helped him win the election. He won by less than one vote per precinct in the United States. Yeah, but what a lot of people might not know, it was George Washington Lee who got the call from Atlanta to tell him to tell Nixon to do that. And who does he reach out to through his people? The other, the major black Republican, Jack. Roosevelt Robinson. Robinson tells Nixon, bruh. Nixon don't make no call. Kennedy makes the call. Jackie Robinson said, I'm voting for Nixon, but if he, I'm voting for the vice president, but if he don't go for civil rights, I'll withdraw. Remember, Robinson ends up completely alienated from the Republican Party. George Washington Lee gets alienated too. When they moved for Goldwater in 64, he's just like, what the hell? I, I can't. My point is that the politics, however, was driven by race. That ain't the case with the mayor of Dallas. His politics, who determines his emancipation, driven by him and his family and his bank account and his political status. But that ain't going to stay the same, sir. Not only are the demographics changing, the politics are changing. And you better read Levitsky and Zablot because this thing, once it slides out, it ain't never going to be brought back. But everybody got to go. 
who determines our emancipation has to be fueled by the momentum of memory. We've got to remember the last times we tried to do this and what happened and what didn't happen so we can learn the lessons and run. We don't put our faith or trust in politician. No politician is a leader. When I see Ayanna Presley get up and talk like she talked and follow, I mean, preceded by knowing her voting record and knowing how she's organized and knowing how both her parents involved in housing activist work and moving around between Ohio and Massachusetts pushing, then I know that what she says is word is bond. Why? Because it's backed by what she does. And so we are facing a hillbilly horde that doesn't care. They burning it. This, this boy, uh, Bill e Eagle in Missouri, cosplay burning books with flamethrowers running for governor. Jerry Sexton, that punk, talking about burning books in the Tennessee, Cameron, rather, uh, burning books in, in, in the Tennessee legislature, getting rid of books. And so they don't want any book in the libraries that you might see our common humanity in. They're talking about LBGTQ. They put an American Library Association just put out a, a report on the books that have been banned and the books that are all over the country and the increase. But you know, I mean, maybe they'll ban a book like this. John Coltrane's birthday. Great book for children. Spirit Seeker, John Coltrane's musical journey. This is uh Gary Giolo and beautiful paintings by Rudy Gutierrez. And so on, um, you know, I think about my man, um, Anya Love, who puts on the John Coltrane symposium. That's why I wore my train shirt today. But it's John Coltrane's birthday. I mean, maybe they don't want this. Why? Because it's too much African and you got women and men and black people and music and you got these beautiful pictures and your child. It's going to make white people feel sad. Yeah, it might make you feel sad. Put on Equinox. We're in the Equinox thing. Put on Equinox. You see black people laboring and working. It scares the hell out of y'all. Why? Because this is a white man's country. No, it ain't. You better check the damn hospitals and the maternity wards and see who having babies. But because you're not going to be here. I'm not going to be here. The next generation will inherit it, and it will be redone. It will change. Now, I thought about that a lot this week as we kind of close. I was in Philadelphia for the memorial. It's been about three months, three months and a couple of days since the transition of Charles Bloxon. And we talked about Mr. Bloxon, and we're still, still going to do a separate one on Charles Bloxon. It was a powerful memorial. Um, our brother Paul Coates. There was a lot of speakers there. I'm left with Sante. A lot of different people spoke, and maybe I'll talk about that separately another day. But Paul gave, as far as I'm concerned, the eulogy because he talked about the genealogy that Mr. Bloxon lived in. And shout out to my my former uh, workers, co-workers, employers when I was in grad school. The great Eslaku Bahanu, the librarian of the Bloxon collection. I was so glad to see Eslaku. That's my girl. Spent a lot of time. In, in that room with her and Mr. Bloxon, Dr. Diane Turner, who is the now curator of the Bloxon collection, just going in that space and sitting. I really didn't want to leave. That's, that's kind of like my adopted hometown, as you know. And of course, Paul is from Philly. So, you know, he and I just stand there in North Philly having conversation. And, you know, it's, it doesn't get any better than that because these are freedom fighters. And Mr. Bloxon was a and remains a legend. He collected that, as Paul said in his in his remarks, he said, never forget that without the collectors, and he named them all, Paul went through the genealogy. It was brilliant. It brought tears to my eyes sitting there listening. He said, you know, never forget without the collection, there is no black studies. Without the books, without the materials, there is no intellectual thrust or foundation for our movement. And I got off the train Tuesday morning and I walked from 30th Street 
down to Spring Garden, down to Community College of Philadelphia, the old places that spent a lot of time, Philadelphia Freedom Schools. Walked over to the old school district building. Not the old one, the new one, because they messed up the, the old one. 21st Street. Shout out to Paul Vallis, the mad scientist. You sold a building built for public education and then rented another one. Now they bought it. But I got there and picked up in the train station a copy of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Let's see if I got the Inquirer. Yep. Philadelphia Inquirer. Got there and received the news that the legend, the great Constance Clayton, Connie Clayton was the first black and first woman, which means, of course, by definition, first black woman, the first black, first woman to be the superintendent of schools in the city of Philadelphia. This is a whole legend right here. Y'all look up Constance E. Clayton, Connie Clayton. Connie Clayton, I mean, you talk about a master teacher. There's an endowed chair. I think there's only one other endowed chair in the country that's older than the one that is named at the University of Pennsylvania for Connie Clayton. And I had to dig this out. I'm glad I hadn't put this one in storage. This is a collection of keynote lectures called Messages for Educational Leadership. These are lectures from the inaugural year of the Constance Clayton chair to the year 2000. And it continues. Uh, the first occupier of that chair, Professor Diana Slaughter Defoe. Um, now she has another name who her married name is. Now she, she was the initial chair. But Constance Clayton master teacher uh only child product of philadelphia public schools graduate of girls high school who determines our emancipation grew up in a house full of books where she said i would go to museums i had all that she said i want all the children to have this and if you ever get a chance in this book it's all lectures from other people except she is interviewed by uh professor slaughter defoe near the end of the book and the interview, let me see if I can find it quickly. Here we go. Interview with Constance Clayton, March 22nd, 2011. She's talking about the fact that all children can learn, all children should learn. And she said, I had a, I had a, let me see if I can find it quickly because I want to read this. She said, um, she never had union strife. She had been a teacher. She was a classroom teacher. She worked on the African-American and African curriculum. When she got downtown, she was a deputy superintendent. She became the superintendent of schools. And she said, in my 11 years, we didn't have a single strike because I met with the union. I indicated particularly to the teachers unions that without the children, there's no need for you and me. She talks about how before she came, there were all these fights between the union. She said, we got to squash this. We all together. She would go, she went to every single school in the school district of Philadelphia. When I started working for the school district of Philadelphia directly in 1999, there were 257 schools. It was the fifth largest district in the country. When Connie Clayton took the reins, about a decade before that, there were, it was the fourth largest district in the country. She visited all the schools and people said, we never see, seen a superintendent. She said, well, get rid, get used to it. You're going to see me. I'm a teacher. She would say, they would say, well, give me a second. We'll take you through the building. She said, no, I'm a citizen. I know how to walk. I'm going to walk in the building. She said, I sit in the classroom. Oh, let me, let me just, I would, man, if I could find this quick, I would let you know. Um, yeah, here we go. A principal would often say, Dr. Clayton, just a minute and I will take you around the building. And I replied, no, I'm a citizen first. And then I'm a superintendent. I know my way around buildings. And so I would go in and visit because I didn't want show and tell. I wanted to see the classrooms. I would go in and sit down and sit in the back of the room to see if I could read the handwriting or the printing on the chalkboards. 
and I would look at the bulletin boards to see what kind of papers were posted on the children's lessons. Have they been up there for two months or did they reflect something learning? And then if I sat in the back of the room, I could see how the teacher interacted with children, who she called on and who she didn't call on because we have a way of demeaning kids. If their hands are raised, they think they know the answer and probably do. And some are never called on. There are many, many ways to demean kids. That's why I say all children are children of value. And even if they have the wrong answer, the fact is that they were trying to answer and wanted to answer. Hmm. Line after line of wisdom from this master teacher. In an age when we know more about athletes and entertainers than Constance E. Clayton, who helped transform education in Philadelphia. Uh, the superintendent now, Tony Washington, good brother, says he wants to rename the building, the school district headquarters, the Costa E. Clayton Learning Center. It makes perfect sense. The thing that makes me sad, however, is that that name should go on the original school district building, which was sold for $25 million by Paul Vallis and the fools. The building that was on the parkway around the corner from the Franklin Institute, where it makes a statement about the value of public education, that 11-story building. But that building is now condos because this country doesn't value education, they value profit. So when we start talking about who determines our emancipation, it's going to be us. And I could say a lot more about Connie Clayton, but I won't right now. Maybe we'll do a you should know about her. Uh, I, 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 but I should mention one other thing very quickly just about her, because I know we're going to get ready to go. Who determines our emancipation? This is where I wanted to go with it, frankly. Um, I was watching, remember uh, Prof. Bill Gray? Of course. William Gray from Philly, yes. North Philly, right? Hope Baptist Church, still, still right there across the street from Temple. I was, I was by there uh, uh, on Tuesday. Walked by there. Gray was elected to Congress. Uh, Charlie Bowser was a black politician who ran for mayor against Bill Green, a white politician whose father had run the Democrat Party in Philly for years. And Bowser lost the primary, but because of the organized uh, organization of black Philadelphians, they made Green give some concessions. Green said, if I'm elected, I'm going to put a black in my cabinet. He did. He made the city manager, a guy named Wilson Good. He said, I'm going to appoint a black superintendent of schools. That was Constance Clayton. So it doesn't look like black elected officials all the time. It looks like how do we determine what we want? And when we organize, and they broke the back of Frank Rizzo. Connie Clayton is not the superintendent of schools had there not been a we in Philadelphia of black people who organized and did that. Uh, they ran a slate. Gussie Clark, Augusta Clark was on city council. Uh, he promised these things and he had to deliver. Now, uh, and, 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 and I'll end with this on, on, on Connie Clayton and on that period. I remember Sam Evans, who turned 100 years old. He was one of the people who kind of Clayton and them would say, this is the guy who trained us when we were children, Model City. Sam Evans was a legend in Philadelphia. We're at his 100th birthday party at the Frank Men Franklin Hotel, downtown Philadelphia, Center City Hotel. And they're all there, kind of Clayton. They tell me, oh, man, he did this for us. We kind of like what young people say about Marion Barry. I had my first job, this kind of thing. So at the end, they sing happy birthday. He gets up. He's 100 years old. He's 100 years old, y'all. He stands up and he said, look at us in our fine clothes, and tuxedos. And, yeah, I had on African clothes. I'm not wearing a tuxedo. And uh, dresses. And everybody looks great, smells great, beautiful. We're having this beautiful dinner in a hotel we don't own. Silence. Sam Evans said, we're a race of gypsies. Mm. All you could hear, as far as I'm concerned, I was sitting in the back, was, <laughs> that was me. 
Anyway, <laughs> Sam Evans, I mean, this is the thing. Look how much progress we've made. We're at the convention center with all these white sponsors for the Congressional Black Caucus weekend. I mean, it's very nice. I mean, yeah, look at us with the Benjamin Franklin Hotel. If you have a happy birthday, yeah, look at us in a hotel. We don't own. We're racist gypsies. The other thing, and I, this is where for today I'll stop. I got those messages. I got the newspapers. Connie Clayton made transition. And then we went to Mr. Bloxon's memorial. His daughter, Noelle. Thank you, Noelle, for everything. You and the family for having us all there. We're there. And the day of speakers go, Paul and them, I see Paul and them, they're going in the back. Then they come out to on the stage. The mistress of ceremonies, Kamika Witherspoon, Professor Witherspoon from Temple University, good sister in theater arts, poet, playwright. She's sitting, here's the podium. She's sitting here next to her, the president of Temple University, Professor Joanne Epps. For many years, the dean of the law school, at one time the provost, 72 years old, uh, a force, a master teacher and educator. In fact, there was talk when Barack Obama picked, and of course he never picked a black woman, unless of course you keep black people who speak Spanish, so I guess some of them are your, but that Elena, Elena Kagan seat, probably should have gone to somebody like Joanna Epps. She was on the list of potential nominees for the United States Supreme Court. Um, from my colleagues at Howard, I understand that they had interviewed her for to be the dean at Howard Law School, but Temple was like, you can't let her go. She'd been at Temple almost, at the time uh, I saw her Tuesday, she'd been there almost 40 years. She wanted to retire a couple of times, but Temple kept asking her to come back, kept asking her to come back. So the program's getting ready to start. We're all sitting there, either stage here. I'm about, I'm in like the second row, sitting next to my people who just came back from Kemet. Uh, Stephanie Tisdale, Kahende Graham, these are my people. We sitting there. And she just goes back like this. And I see Malefi, who's Dante, sitting next to her, to her right. Nudger says something. He gets up, says something to Kamika. They get up, come to the podium. Is there a doctor? One of the brothers who's been on Temple Police Force for many years, you know, one of the officers, white shirts, he comes out the back, comes across the stage, picks up Professor Epps, President Epps, in his arms and walks off stage with her. And the brother who had opened with prayer, we have a collective prayer. We didn't find out. They didn't tell us. Because now it's a question. Do you wait to hear? Do you go on? But we went on because they had taken her off. We said, okay, maybe she just passed out. It's exhausting. We didn't find out until we close the ritual for Mr. Bloxton to the 13th president of Temple University, President Joanna Epps made transition. That was her last act on this earth. She never regained consciousness. And uh, life is short. Life is short. And I want to lift her up, lift her family up. Uh, they removed the interim president. There had been a president, Jason Wingard, first black man to be president of Temple. Uh, he resigned and she said, I want to retire. He said, no, we, will you just be the interim until we said, so they got the presidential search going. Apparently the Temple Board of Trustees has voted to remove the interim tags and she will be formally the 13th president of Temple University. But I tell you right now, we don't know, you know, everybody's time. No, nobody knows the day or the hour, but uh, just understand that, you know, we all got to go that way. So I just wanted to raise her name and, and keep her family in prayer and love lifted. Ashe, Dr. Dr. Joanne Epps. Um, you know, when I saw that, I thought that you might be in the building. Yeah, we were there. And to watch somebody make transition, because that is what happened. Yeah. Um, it is a reminder that every single moment that we spend, while we should have joy and frivolity, 
um, we're here for a reason. That woman's 40 years there and beyond made an impact on thousands of lives and beyond. Uh, it did. You know, I called Nate Norman. Nate couldn't, Bob Nate couldn't make it. He was in Atlanta, but I called him and he said, she was the dean of law school. He said, I never had a student who said, you know, I'm interested in going to law school. I will call Joanne. She said, Nate, send him over. She would spend time. You're absolutely right, Prof. She influenced generations of students, particularly our students, particularly black girls and boys, young men and women who came over there and wanted to stay. Joanne Epps did it. And she was loved to a person, to a person because of that. So she determined our emancipation. And we determine who we remember. That's right. Names we keep into uh, history. That's you know, right. celebrity is is another um, way in which we get anesthetized into you know worshiping false gods and being outside of our own uh, power to be free. Right? Because we put we place our existence in the hands of people because they can sing, run a ball, dance, act. Uh, as if that's a proxy for you living your fullest life, you know, mm -hmm. so you can be a fan, a fanatic of someone and not a fan of yourself. How about that? Yes, yes, yes. You know, so rest in power, Dr. Joanne Epps, and thank yeah. you for evoking her name. Everyone should know who she is. And, um, you know, equally to the, the people that we like to, um, you know, praise and be like, right. let's try to be like her. And the people who make who make contributions. I mean, her 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 contribution to us is greater in many ways. I mean, here's a guy who the front page of yesterday's New York Times. Who are they talking about? Jimmy Carter. Mm. Jimmy Carter say, "Look, I'm going home for hospice." There wasn't nothing even really particularly wrong with him. He done beat brain cancer. He then broke his hip when he was ninety. So they say, "Okay, maybe it's a matter of days." It's been months. It has been months. <laughs> you know? And he's just sitting there eating. He's he eating peanut butter ice cream. He watching Sunday school because he can't teach no more. But his niece over there, he offering criticism and, and he, he encouragement. So I pulled Jonathan Alter's book, his very best, uh, Jimmy Carter: A Life. Because mm. that awful day will surely come. I ain't gonna see ninety nine, right? See, but but my point is this: we don't have to limit the number of people that we look at, and we don't have to be uncritical. But our people, problem, come on back. This way, our people, our people have to be remembered. I mean, Jimmy Carter, you should know Jimmy Carter's name. You got to know his policy in Africa. You got to understand what he did after the presidency. You got to understand why he wasn't reelected. All those things are very important. But you should never put them before Constance Clayton, Joanna Epps, because I mean, these people get a whole measure of life to our people and they made an impact. So you're absolutely right. We have to choose who. And that includes athletes, too, depending on what they did. Right. <laughs> you know? that, part, that part, you know, uh, I'm constantly someone's like, I don't know how to, you know, um, imagine you know whatever what, what is the impact of Deion Sanders I was like enjoy it enjoy it but do know that this is not uh, a civil rights uh, moment here this is not a movement, not a civil it, rights movement. And it's, it's no disparagement you know no. enjoy the football for what it is but well, do although, not although you shouldn't have uh, a cat running out on the field with a hundred thousand screaming white people talking about ride for my n-words well Dr. Carr <laughs> well, well hold on because 70% of that music is pumped into the ear holes of suburban white America. Well, I agree. That's how they see us. I agree. So so the responsibility of the artist 
to to be more conscious. And just because, you know, maybe a Pharrell can use the word ubiquitous and we are like, oh, wow, he's smart. Uh-huh. Or a common could say something, you know, and I'm not singling them out other than no. these are people who may, may read books. Right. But there's still a greater responsibility to not then, you know, promote uh, or even be in league with the debauchery, especially if you say you love the Lord and you're going to come out with that. I love the Lord. He heard my cry. Come on. I guess the key phrase in there is and pitied every moan. Because right now the Lord is pitying you, Dion, for running that boy out there in front of all them screaming people. And I'm sure, as you said, Prof, there were thousands in there having been given the license to say freely what they usually only say in their cars. Yelled the N-word. No, they had to go to commercial night. break because even, <laughs> even the ESPN recognized. Wait a what? I didn't see it. See, I didn't watch it. Wait, what? I mean, they kind of had to, right? Because you can't pan this, the crowd of, of 80% of a melanemic folk yelling out the N-word. Ooh, not even if Drip Bayless is the best friend of the guy who uh, sparked it. Come on. <laughs> this is it's, it's, mm. it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's all we're gonna keep we're gonna keep doing what we've been doing. We're gonna pour this clean glass of water, we're gonna keep building up the bricks from the rubble. We're gonna take the bricks from the rubble because it's free, they're just freely flowing (laughs) as this thing dismantles, and we're gonna build a world that we want to live in because we have the power to do it. We have the power to do it, so we're gonna do that. Um, and I love you. I love love you, you. and I love us. How about that? I'm I'm in the Nubia chat. I was gonna play Larie's video, but I want y'all to go to her Instagram. Oh, for real? Uh, and see her song, Laurie Daniel Favors. And I want y'all to listen to her. She's got one of the most powerful shows on Urban View, Channel 126, Monday through Friday. What's up, uh, Channel 126, 10 a.m. Eastern. Please tune in because she is literally bringing folk on who are changing the world. No and uh, she inspired me this week to uh, do something starting in January. And I just, that's why we bump up against each other. We want to be inspired to yes. imagine to imagine this world better because yeah. we we're, we're being pressed to be better. Don't be mad about it. If you're uncomfortable, sit in your discomfort, but figure out what it is about you. You need to change, be better. Speak okay. good words. What is it? Metanephor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good speech. That's right. If you, if you find yourself not speaking good speech, even in, in these chats, in, in, in the, in the comments, if all you have is something negative to say, that's a you problem. And you are destroying the very possibilities of your success. Right. That's right. And, and don't, don't, let, don't let any barrier stop you. On Monday night, and we were all there, Brother Dale from California came in. This brother was locked up. He said, 15 years he did. They, they didn't. He not only got out, he got his law degree. He Come said, I'm on, living man. George Jackson. I'm living Malcolm X. I studied. And he said, what was it? He, what he said? His, bro, his boy got put in with him. 41 years this man did. But this brother Dale not only got out, not only got a law degree, he spends his practice defending prisoners. And he said, I was able to get my mans out of jail after 41 years because I got Come out. On. Larry had on uh, a guest this week that um, funds, because he didn't finish uh, Howard because he ran out of money. Mm-hmm. So, so now they raise scholarships for, for young people in the, in the quote unquote inner cities to, to, to finish school. But he said, there's an edict, you know, if you're going to get a law degree, you better use that law degree to come back and serve the community. That's if you want to get an engineering degree, what sense does it make if your grandmama's neighborhood is falling apart? You got an engineering degree, fix that. You're an architect, come in to the community and fix that. Any, yes. If you're a plumber, come on in the community and fix the things that are wrong. Don't just always run to the, to the ice water that you think is colder when your neighborhood 
need you. So if you're going to go get a degree, and I was like, that is something Dr. Daniel Black has said. You have said yeah, that. What's the point in getting these wonderful, you know, these degrees from Harvard and Yale and Wharton? And uh, If you're not going to come business, we need businesses. Oh. And I can be, you got a business degree? Come on, help these businesses form their corporations and pay their taxes and be viable because this is what we do. Like a degree is not a degree just because of the paper and where it comes from. It's a degree because you are serving the community. And that's, that's gotta be it. If I'm gonna have a platform, damn it, it's going, we're going to hold people accountable. We're going to have conversations, but more importantly, we're going to build the world that we want to live in with this microphone that we have or else what the hell's the point? You know, I'm just saying, everybody, you know, we want to giggle and chuckle and listen to, you know, the folk out there who are getting sued and losing their money because they got reckless things to say. What the oh. hell? Why are we doing this? Why? 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 That's right. right. Okay. Teach. No, no, no. That's it. Let's 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 let that let, let, let resonate. I love you too. I love you. All right. We'll see y'all uh, on Monday. I'll see you on Monday. All right. All right. All right. Okay. And uh, oh, oh, solo layout for you. Okay. Let me uh, do that. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out. All right. Bye, Dr. Carr. Yeah. Love you. All right. Bye, y'all. See y'all. Some of y'all on Monday uh, in, at Urban View and in uh, New York. All right. Have a wonderful